Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I am your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello. Hello. We also have Bill Graham. And with us today, a special guest to help us review the new movie from director Spike Lee to Five Bloods. It's Odie Henderson. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, ladies and gentlemen at home, we can be found on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Uh, you can email us, podcastfilmstage.com. And of course, give us a comment and a rating on iTunes. Go to patreon.com slash filmstageshow in order to give us as little as $1 an episode to help us produce this great content for you. You also get access to our Slack channel where there's always some sort of ruckus happening that you can take part in and of course you get first crack at all of our great raffles we are also brought to you of course by Mubi, the streaming service where their curators bring you a brand new independent or world film to enjoy every day you always have something fun and new to watch on Mubi. uh no algorithms here every film is hand selected speaking of which they got some pretty great-looking stuff that's coming, so let's take a look at it. First of all, a movie much loved by myself. It's Ida from Pavel Pavlikovsky, who uh, just did Cold War. A couple was that? Oh my God, was that only last year? Please tell me that wasn't only last year. Um, I'm, I'm two not years sure. Ago. Okay, it's, it's two years ago. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, time has dilated and like yes. someone mentioned something that happened in February to me and I was like, ah, oh, I was so young then. So <laughs> anyway, uh, for his first film made in his native Poland, writer director Pavel Pawlikowski created this character study, Ida, a personal and pensive historical drama, carefully composed and exquisitely rendered in black and white. Winner of the Academy Award for best foreign language feature. Also, Madi under Dio- two hours. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, it is. It's it it's, is. A, it's yeah. a pretty brief film. <laughs> yes, I just want to. I just want to mention that. Um, we also have the 2009 short film from uh, Madi Diop, uh, Atlantics. Oh, nice. Yes. Yeah, that was good. Her film is is wonderful and actually available. Or her full feature version of that short is on Netflix at called Atlantics, but not uh, not spelled the same as that short. Yes. But uh, that's a wonderful film that I highly recommend uh, anyone watch if they haven't seen it. I was not aware that she was the niece of Jabril Diop-Mbete. Yeah, yeah. I, I think she did a short uh, about him as well. She's done some type of documentary short about him, I believe. Awesome. Well, if you are interested in checking those out on Mubi, you can get a free 30-day trial by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that number, that address is mubi.com slash filmstage. And that is that. 
we got through the front matter in record time. So that means that we can now get to our main review. And that is to five bloods again from director Spike Lee. This movie stars Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, Jonathan Majors, uh, Zaya Whitlock Jr. And Norm Lewis amongst many others. I'm sure we will get into all of them because the performances in this film are something to talk about uh, before we jump in. However, of course, we begin with a brief clip from the trailer. Gentlemen, welcome back to Vietnam. Look at that sound. You're the man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. We bury it. All right. So that is the trailer for Five Bloods. This movie streaming on Netflix now. And the synopsis is as such. Four African-American vets battle the forces of man and nature when they return to Vietnam, seeking the remains of their fallen squad leader and the gold fortune he helped them hide. Uh, That's synopsis coming from IMDb. And it worked very well, so I just used it whole cloth. Uh, We will begin, as always, with our spoiler-free thoughts before moving, I assume, swiftly into spoilers. Let us begin with our guest, Odie Henderson. What are your basic spoiler-free thoughts on The Five Bloods? Well... Uh, I I went into it blind, not knowing very much about what Spike Lee was going to do. I made an assumption that turned out to be correct that he was going to make a movie that spoke to black vets in the Vietnam War and that was going to be filtered through, in some ways, a treasure to Sierra Madre. But that's all I knew going in. Uh, And based on Spike Lee's prior movie about war, Miracle St. Anna, I was a little hesitant to kind of get my hopes extremely high because I wasn't a big fan of that film. Um, it turns out that I was, was my fear is a little unfounded. I think this is a fantastic movie. I think Spike Lee has put together a very interesting kind of mixture of genre and commentary like he always does. But as a, you know, a film historian, a student of film and a teacher of it, he's once again, pulling all these pieces together and making some instances blatant homages to things and other instances taking those familiar aspects of certain films and kind of putting them into the movie or kind of bending them or giving reference to them. Uh, the There were some things in the movie that normally annoy me. Uh, Newton Thomas Siegel did the cinematography. This is the second movie of his on Netflix this year after Extraction, uh, which I also reviewed and was also a war kind of based movie. They changed the aspect ratio a couple of times in this movie and that usually drives me crazy, but I thought Lee handled it very well. I think it's extremely well shot and very well acted and in a big portrayal of not just what it was like for people of color to be on the ground in Vietnam, also talking about the trauma that came back with them. And Delroy Lindo's character kind of is the conduit for a lot of what Lee and his screenwriters want to say about that. Um, 
I think he's great. I think the acting down the line is fantastic, but I think Lindo probably gives the second best performance in a Spike Lee movie behind, of course, Denzel Washington's Malcolm X. It's just as complex a performance. And I think that uh, the um, extra footage that he used, documentary footage and everything, that works seamlessly into the movie. And it doesn't seem like it's a gimmick in some place, some other kinds of movies would make it seem like it's a gimmick. I think that he does a very good job of, of pulling these things together and also kind of making note that there are very few movies out there about Vietnam vets or war veterans who aren't white. And so I think that this is kind of why I think he, when he got the script, the original script for this movie, he and Kevin Wilmot added these extra things to it to make it kind of be not just a commentary on war movies in general and how they're normally depicted in Hollywood, but also a commentary about what's missing from those movies and what we don't see in those movies. And he takes that and I think it works very, very well together as a whole. Um, it's my spoiler-free thoughts there. And, and he does a great job with the score of Terrence Blanchard and uh, the Marvin Gaye songs, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail. Absolutely. Well, that was a wonderful, concise, deeply felt, and deeply thought summation of one's feelings. I would hate to have to follow that. Michael Snydell. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Defy Bloods? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I really, I really like this, and um, it was, it was interesting you, ent- uh, you mentioned uh, Miracle at Saint Anna, uh, Oda, because I actually caught up that, with that this weekend, and and that was, you know, a, a film that you know was overstuffed and I, I didn't think handled tonal changes but it was it was still fascinating but I, I mentioned that because I think it was less productive for me to watch that film and how he handled the war there than uh, documentaries I mean you already mentioned the archival and the still photography and I think the ways this plays with aspect ratios which on paper sounds so annoying to me as well um, is is really beautiful like I I love the way that you know it um it stays kind of a kind of widescreen for the present tense it uh it goes into i I believe it's academy i did not check this so please get mad at me if i'm wrong uh for the past sequences and i just think the way that it switches between different narrative modes different uh visual modes is just like i think it's i think it's extremely impressive i I would say that I this is one of my favorite Spike movies, having having still having many blind spots for about the first hour and 45 minutes. I have some more complicated feelings about where it goes after that. But I will say that the performances are so exceptional that they pretty much got me through anything I found even a little bit clunky or writerly. And yeah, just I this is just such a, a consciously literate movie like, you know, Spike has always deeply filtered his uh, his love of movies through, um, you know, through previous films, whether it's like knowing winks, at, you know, at things like Treasure of Sierra Madre or, you know, jokes about uh, missing in action and Rambo and and, and you know, even far more uh literate things but i just think that 
as much as I think ultimately it's a little overstuffed, I just think this is such an ambitious, uh, audacious totally (laughs) feels like I'm repeating myself, but I just can't emphasize how much I, I love that this is so much like it, it's so singular for that exact reason um and yeah it's I, I just think there's so much going on here and i'm really excited to dissect it e- even the things i don't think land perfectly i think are still interesting in the least all right bill graham yeah, I'm, I'm definitely here for this movie. Uh, I enjoyed it 100%. Um, I don't have a lot of critiques uh, that I feel confident kind of voicing here, but uh, I'm looking forward to kind of getting into the conversation about the film. Um, I, I definitely agree, Michael. I think the film kind of... I don't know if it falters so much as it maybe stubs its toe a couple of times in the end. Um, But I definitely think that the first opening kind of salvo of this entire movie is, is just really, really chef's kiss emoji kind of, kind of stuff. The, the performances, yes, across the board, fantastic. Uh, The music, uh, the setting. um, I mean, does anyone know if they actually filmed in Vietnam? In Thailand, uh, although the Apocalypse Now bar is in Saigon, well, Ho Chi Minh City, I should say not Saigon, but there's a real bar. Mm -hmm. So so they're really there. But I think for the most part, they shot in Thailand. Um, Well, it's it's beautiful. So, I mean, you know, they they definitely did uh, Thailand some some service uh, via, uh, (laughs) you know, Um, but. Uh, yeah, that, that, sorry. I just want to say that bar is crazy. It's like Apocalypse Now as like a rainforest cafe, <laughs> and it made me deeply uncomfortable. Oh, oh it's, it's been there for that 28 bar. years. Yeah, the, the bar apparently has been there quite a long time. And uh, really, that is amazing. It's a tourist. It's a tourist attraction. Sure, as well as should be. <laughs> I, I love uh, – I'll, I'll mention this briefly and then kind of uh, let Brian jump in here with his thoughts. But uh, I there's a sequence early on when they kind of walk through that bar and it's it's so funny and it's so different and it's so odd that they kind of like do this like little side shuffle dance four in a line and everybody is just kind of moving and parting around them like a wave and well, that that's 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 a visual tie to soul train mm-hmm. the soul train line that would happen when well when i was a kid and i watched soul train they would have these moments where everybody would be standing on the side and then people would come down the line and dance yeah, and so it, it's exactly she shot that way, Spike Lee. I mean, there's a lot more people in that bar than you know, sure. Soul Train. But it is it, that as soon as I saw that, I was like, this is the Soul Train line. Spike Lee has a Soul Train line at the end of the Crooklyn as well. I mean, actual physical Soul Train line, a real one, set to the yeah. Crooklyn Dodger song. So so this is a this is intentional, having mm. them come down. And also any any it's it's a cliche in every movie. When people start dancing, everybody moves out of the way, right? So you yeah. can get a good yeah. camera shot of it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, I just I just love that kind of stuff. I just because we are now talking about like the dancing and the club scene and everything. I just need to say between this and the scene in um, Black Black Klansman when they're singing, I believe I'm falling in love. And uh, there's a scene in this where 
Um, they break into song and then there's another scene where someone sings alone. I just, Spike Lee, make a musical, please. I really need that <laughs> in my life. Like the, oh, yeah, yeah, passing strange. But that's just a, that's just right. a, it's, just, um, well, it's not his musical, right? It's not it, his, it's musical. a live performance. Is, and is that right? And you have school days. Yeah. Okay. I but just, but yeah. every Spike Lee movie is a musical under its skin. Yeah. And it's just like, I, I and I just, I love when, this is going to sound gross. What, when what's under the skin comes up and breaks the surface. I just, I find those scenes so, so joyful that I'm just like, I don't know. I just need like full on singing in the rain. You know, it's just great. Um, as a preamble for my thoughts, that uh, is a very good indicator of my feelings on this movie. I very much enjoyed this film. I, um, when I think about, Spike Lee, I think about him being like a a very bold, very brave filmmaker. And it's not because of what he's talking about, though that obviously plays into it, but it's more of what he's willing to do aesthetically, the things that he's willing to uh, let slide formally for the sake of making the movie that he wants to make and making the point that he wants to make. The the way that he tonally and aesthetically jumps um, from scene to scene and even within scenes is just such a fearless act that especially watching something like this movie where, you know, it's, it it feels like it could just be like going in style meets uh, the three Kings or treasure of Sierra Madre, but it just goes so many places and does so many things and um, I understand the concept of it being overstuffed, but like I am a man who loves it when I take a bite out of a burrito and suddenly feel as though I am no longer in control of the situation. <laughs> so to me, it's like, yeah, overstuff it. Like, you know, give me those Oreos that are just like four times the amount of stuff than there are cookie. Like, I don't I don't care. I'm a glutton. And when you boo, have boo. <laughs> No, this is the wrong opinion. Boo. No, no to the overstuffed Oreos. Too much stuffing dismantles the Oreo. No. Give me the thins. Thank right. you. No, no, oh, the thins are okay. Oh, We're not boy. getting into this. I can't do the thin Oreos. Um <laughs> anyway, uh what I was what I was gonna say is basically I um I came into the five bloods pretty blind. As to what was going to happen, I was surprised that it had a modern day component, which I guess lets you know how much I was paying attention to the uh, the marketing. Um, but, you know, Spike Lee is one of those directors where I just I kind of don't need it. I don't need the marketing. I don't need to be sold. I'm just kind of there and I'm I'm excited to see what happens. And this movie does not disappoint. Uh, I, there were like moments in this movie where it just quotes other movies and that was enough to like almost get a spontaneous round of applause for me alone in my house, in my living room. Um, and yeah, I just, it's, it's such a, it's such a, it's, it's like so jarringly fun, but also deeply felt. I mean, I, I am, I am a Delroy Lindo fan from way back in the day and just seeing him get to enjoy the gift of a character that he was given in this movie is more than enough reason for me to recommend this. Um, but then you get, I mean, you just talk about like everyone else in the movie. Like they're just, they're all so good. I, I, I love Clark Peters, uh, who 
I mean, obviously the wire is his big one, but like as as Big Chief Lambro in Treme, he's just like one of the best, most complex, most deeply felt te- characters in all of television. And seeing him being able to bring that kind of steadfastness and that like kindly, benignly patriarchal voice to this movie, yeah, is just great. Um I, I have like some minor quibbles, but the thing is that even as I was feeling them, I could feel the movie doing it purposefully as part of its comment upon and playing inside the sandbox of different movies. So like if I were to say that certain characters feel perhaps underwritten and marked for death, like I don't think that's not on purpose. And I think that the way that that works within the movie, which I'm, I'm speaking too obliquely for the non-spoiler section, so this is probably not making any sense, but the way that it works within the movie makes the movie more impactful and more powerful for me. So, like, I I, uh, I really like Defy Bloods. I, I watched it last night, went to the distillery today, and, uh, like, the first thing I told my partner at the distillery was like, so there's this movie on Netflix, and you need to watch it. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, so. and they were like, "You said something about Netflix. There's a problem. <laughs> something nice about Netflix. There's a problem." <laughs> I mean, you know, the the one knock that I could give this movie is just that I had to watch it on my television, which is not a problem with the movie at all. Um, oh, that's sure. unfortunate. You know, they they were supposed to play Can, and I'm sure it would have gotten a release. Uh, you know, would have been out, but alas. Yeah, the the world Rona does has not allow. To say about that. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So like, I, I, you know, I am, we have mentioned the, uh, the shifting aspect ratios. I, I find that to be something that when deployed well, I really like, I don't see it and immediately not respond to it. Well, um, I think of off the top of my head, uh, the grand Budapest hotel. I really liked that. Um, and in this movie, I think it's, it's, it's really kind of kicked up a notch. It's, it's, uh, it's like a formal reflection of the psychology of the characters and where they are. And I really quite liked it. And, um, I, I think was it's crazy s- too, that they like show you, like they're very consciously like we are changing the aspect ratio right now. It's yes, not like you there's... cut. Yeah, there's a wipe. There's a really old-fashioned wipe that changes the aspect ratio, which I thought was very amusing it, that Lee would employ such a an old-school device to bring in a new-school device of changing the uh, the aspect ratio. It, again, as I say, it usually drives me crazy, and I had to really think about another movie that I liked that consciously changed the aspect ratio, and I had a hard time. I mean, it, <laughs> last year the, at, at uh, Toronto, the, the movie Lucy in the Sky – changed the acid ratio about 27 million times and i wanted to jump out of the window i was <laughs> i was gonna bring up lucy in the sky but then i was like but i never saw that i just heard about it and felt like it would annoy me it's 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 awful it was one of the worst movies of the year and it has and in, in all the years i've gone to toronto it has the most it's the saddest audience reaction i've ever been involved in <laughs> no at the end of the movie the, the director was there and at the end of the movie Two people clapped. Oh. And you could tell it was two people clapping because you know what the sound of four hands clapping are. And normally when that happens, people feel like obligated to clap, right? So like, you know, when you hear one clap and then people start clapping and, and, you know, even if they don't mean it, they start clapping, right? 
Well, that didn't happen. <laughs> it's two people clapping, and I think one of them might have been a director. <laughs> and that was it. It was dead silence, and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> that is super sad, because usually, like, you, you can shame people into... into clapping, yeah. Yeah. Um, but apparently the audience there was like, no, I know what I saw. It was a full house too. It was packed. Oh God. Cause that was, that was, that was a very, um, right. right, It was a highly anticipated movie that a lot of people were excited for. I was excited for that movie. I knew that woman. And then I, I I never saw the movie. Um, well, well the movie, it, it did not embrace its trashy concept. It, it wanted to be, you know, it, it wanted to be serious. And you just can't tell this story with a serious face. You can tell it with a satirical face, but you can't act like you're doing the best years of our lives. <laughs> so that's what they tried to do. And the audience wasn't fooled. And it's, the, <laughs> it was just, and I've been going to Toronto since 2000. So this is the saddest. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, Duets, got a better reception. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> I um yeah I I remember hearing about that movie and being like oh Natalie Portman I feel like she could like really like Black Swan style and ingra- embrace the crazy and then hearing about their reaction to it and I was like eh. but they wouldn't let her they wouldn't let her embrace the crazy and she sounded like Mama on Mama's family. <laughs> oh, well, now man. I feel kind of bad for this movie. <laughs> for Lucy and Scott, it. but I mean like yeah. I'm sorry, Lucy. <laughs> I'm sure everyone involved with that movie who is very, very successful in all of their aspects of life is totally fine with its failure. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, only two people clapped. I'll just have to console myself with my millions of dollars and my acclaim in every other aspect of my life. Oh, absolutely. You, you know? yeah. Did you like the Crooklyn aspect ratio? You know, that sensation that it does in the in the section where they're at the I think it's aunt and uncle. Yeah, when they when when she goes down south in Crooklyn and they change the aspect yes. ratio, but I mean that that's in a way it's consistent, but it also has a dramatic purpose. It it drove yeah. me crazy, but as someone who has southern relatives and as someone who was a northerner and who had to go down there, that's what it looked like when I got there. So I was able to forgive it. <laughs> does it, it I I have not seen that movie. It gets does, does the frame get larger? It becomes it becomes anamorphic, so it becomes distorted. Yeah. So it's oh, kind of like you're seeing the strangeness of this environment through the character's eyes, and and it's not like and then Lee commits to it. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's like that for the entire time she's down there. So it it, it takes a little bit of uh, getting used to it, and, and and again, it kind of shows you what Lee was thinking or what he might want to continue to do you know there's that point i think it happens in non jungle fever where he starts to become a little more experimental and he starts throwing things out that may not necessarily work and either he will abandon them or he will try them again in a way that he thinks might work the next time or if it did work he will continue to Mm -hmm. use it Mm -hmm. so around that time he became a little bit more experimental i I think it it drove me crazy but from a dramatic and narrative perspective i got what she was feeling (laughs) because i I, i've been i was in her situation so (laughs) as a as a person from the north who now has family uh in two different places in the south and uh you know when we vacation we go to the beach that is in north carolina uh which despite its name is in the south um I always feel like whenever I whenever I like cross below like North Virginia, um, everything becomes widescreen. Like 
like <laughs> I don't know, sixteen uh, nine or something. Like just I don't know what it is. I think maybe it's flat. Like you know, I'm used to rolling hills or like dense cities, and just like if I go to Houston. I step off the plane and I just feel like Lawrence of Arabia in the desert. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, my God. well, I mean, I mean, for sure. I, I can Texas see forever. Yeah. Texas yeah. is in IMAX. Um, I was, a, yeah, when I was at the beach and I was shooting with a wide angle lens on my camera, I was like, this almost feels like too much. Like, I feel like I'm. I feel like every picture I'm trying to take of my daughter that's just like, look at my cute daughter playing in the surf. It's like, oh, she's about to be swallowed by the enormity of the universe. <laughs> anyway, um, let's talk about To Five Bloods. Um, you, yeah, I think I've wrapped up my feelings on this movie. I can't remember. Uh, B plus to A minus, three and a half to four stars. I don't know. I very much liked it. I cannot wait to talk about it. Um, well, we are. Yeah, here we are. Um does anyone have any final spoiler-free thoughts, or should we just dive right into the spoiler section? Everybody mentioned the music. A, oh, sorry. I, 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 mentioned I'm sorry. I mentioned it briefly, and I thought we'd talk about it in more detail later, since it does kind of play into some of the dramatic scenes. But I wanted to mention, and I got in trouble for this on, on Twitter, that there is a, quote, post credit sequence in this movie and everyone thought I was talking about it was some kind of Marvel scene which is absurd <laughs> in a Spike Lee movie but there, there is a an in-joke at the end of this movie and if you watch The Wire or if you're familiar with one of the actors in this film, the in-joke will be very funny and also you get a kind of a feel for the scope of this picture, how many people worked on it uh, and I thought that was actually quite fun, you know and, some people enjoyed it, and some people thought that Sam Jackson was going to show up and ask them to become part of the Five Blood Avengers. <laughs> I mean, I would be down with that. I'm totally fine with that. Um, if you just it does have Chadwick, so just you know. pluck Delroy Lindo out of this movie and drop him into the middle of the Avengers, and I am the happiest man on earth. Oh shoot! <laughs> I'd be back to Marvel. If all well, right, man. If, all crimes if, if are forgiven. Elba can be, if Idris Elba can be a Norse god, why not Delroy Lindo? I'm fine with that. Yeah, I mean, make him anything. I don't. I don't know. Just make him. Make him a Falcon's maga stop, uncle. Stop my ideas. I don't. <laughs> well, I mean, we can have Falcon time travel and go help Cap, and then there he is. There's yeah. Delroy. Oh. <laughs> um, Lindo, call your agent. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, get on the phone. Uh make it happen. I um I think that uh yeah, I think I I think I'm ready for us to get into spoilers. Um so let's oh, I just never mind, it's fine for spoilers. Uh because I actually have a question um Odie based on your review, I wanted to ask. So I'll just say we're in spoilers now. Uh congratulations for getting this far. If you haven't seen the movie, uh please do because we're about to spoil the hell out of it. I just need to know. Before we talk about anything else, you said in your review, <clears throat> French speakers will benefit from a great visual play on Des Roche later in the film. Roche. Roche means rock. Oh, okay. So <laughs> when they bring the gold bars to John Renault and it's rocks in the bag, I oh. was assuming that that was intentional. I mean, it could be completely one of those things where it just so happened that it's a common French name. It just happened to mean rocks. But I, I, knowing Spike, I'm sure he did his homework. Awesome. Okay. I just needed to know that because I read that last night after I saw this movie. And I was like, well, what the heck does he mean? <laughs> but yes. 
right. That, that's that's what I meant. The, awesome. And Spike, it, and I mentioned that Spike kind of people have normal names in this movie. You know, in Spike Lee movies, they never have. They have these wonderful names like you know, Flipper Purify, and and <laughs> sure. Radio Rahim, and and you know, and Mookie, and they have these wonderful crazy names. Uh, you know. John Singleton had Furious Styles and Boys in the Hood. And here, everybody's named something that that you've heard of, that, that isn't a great made-up Spike Lee name. Uh, but what I discovered, and I wasn't paying attention to this, and, and Jonathan Majors mentions it, it kind of gives you you know, a dialogue that kind of points to this. When he meets uh, Hedy, Hedy Bouvier, not Hedy Lamar, and she say, he says his name is David, and she says, like in the Bible, and he says, no, like the Temptations, David Ruffin. Yeah. yeah. Well, David, Otis, Eddie, Melvin, and uh, all yep. are the Temptations. Yes, they are. That's the name of all the Temptations. Then, of course, Norman is Norman Whitfield, probably, who was a producer of many of the later Temptation songs, um, and, and also he wrote Car Wash, the song Car Wash. <laughs> yeah, when when David brings up like David Ruffin, I sat up in my seat. I was like, Mother of God, could it really be that obvious? <laughs> I missed it. Yeah, I didn't I know the. the <laughs> I didn't know the Norm connection. I, I I had figured out that Temptations thing, but not the Norm connection. So that that's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, I'm one of those people who like the Temptations are like one of my top five musical groups of all time. So like. You know, I just, I heard that. And I was like, oh my God, it's all of them. <laughs> yes. I freaked out. Um, <laughs> clearly, I have begun to be get much more uh, invested in my movie watching experiences, even if I'm, again, alone in my house. <laughs> well, I think we could start, spoiler wise, with what what is, what serves as the plot of this film. And then... This, what serves as the plot of this film is, is even in its most standard form, rich with other ideas that Lee and company are putting into this film. The gold, which is the MacGuffin and the, in some ways a deus ex machina at the end of the movie, uh, comes from the treasure of Sierra Madre, which and, and there are a lot of callbacks to that movie, both blatant and not so blatant. And in that movie, of course, John Huston's masterpiece, uh, the gold is William Walter Walter Houston uh, and then Humphrey Bogart are out to get this gold that's not processed that they want to bring back and make money and get rich and get out of this town that they're in. And in this movie, this gold that's supposed to go to the Vietnamese folks who assisted the U.S. in spying and so on is now being kind of commandeered for what even Kevin Bozen says, a reparational purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that is heavy with kind of some some politics as well as just being a plot device, you know, and, and looking at how in a lot of moments in this film – Lee makes the comparison between the poor Vietnamese who are being fought against and the poor black folks who are down there fighting them. Thirty-two percent, as Hanoi Hannah says in her little one of her little uh, radio program notes, are down there, and so it's kind of like muddies the water just a little bit in terms of what that goal could mean or what it would have meant to poor folks in general. It, it starts the movie starts with. 
Muhammad Ali talking his famous uh, statement about how he wasn't going to go to Vietnam. And, and it ends with Martin Luther King reading Langston Hughes. And, and in between that, there's all of this kind of study about war, not just how it affected Americans or black folks, but how it affected the Vietnamese. And Lee really digs into that in a lot of ways. And he uses these tropes, these ideas from other movies to get this point across. So he's kind of using this genre to make his point, to kind of get you interested in what's happening. But while you're there, kind of dig at a more deeper meaning that he's applying to these things. And I think think one thing that's interesting is that he actually speaks to the people there basically saying that you know there's there's still ongoing tension although like the war is over right and and most people feel like you know we were not justifiably in vietnam and and all of these things and so it's odd that there's still tension there between you know the the four remaining members and you know everywhere that they kind of move around i mean <laughs> Um, Paul doesn't necessarily help the situation very often, but um, just the same. It's interesting, right? And the French are there as well, which is another commentary yeah. on. And then John Renault says, we we were just as bad as, as you guys were. You know, the United States has just as much bad luck with Vietnam or the same amount of luck as we had in, in France. He says that. And, and that's something a lot of people kind of forget is, you know, what, what the French's role in Vietnam was you know, at the time and before that. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that he brings in the French and kind of has them as uh, co-conspirators in, in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it reminded me a lot of um, the, the redux of uh, apocalypse now where they restore the scenes on the French plantation. Right. Um, having, having Hetty talk about that, you know, the fact that her family, owned rubber plantations and then rice yeah. and, and everything. And, and even just Jean Renault has, first of all, Jean Renault has aged. I, <laughs> I was like, is that Jean Renault? Yeah. And I was like, no, that's uh, Brian. Not all French people look alike. And then it was like with Jean Renault. I was like, Oh crap. <laughs> um, so anyway, yes, if you're watching this movie, do not uh, be shocked. That is Jean Renault. Um, so what I was going to say is, um, just the way that he's like dressed and everything like brings to mind, you know, this European man in this, you know, tropical climate with his like, you know, cream colored suit sitting in an expensive room, just like. And very... of course he has like a Ruger, right? Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yes. That's, uh, yeah. And he's dressed like a plantation owner. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. He's, he's styled very distinctively. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, what, so th- what did y'all? Oh, did you want to go ahead and keep this, or were you going to pivot? I, well, I was just going to say, like, and this is, you know, just just talking about just the way Jean Reno's character shows up is one of the things where I was like, it's overstuffed. Give it to me. I don't care. <laughs> uh, what were you yeah. going to say, Bill? Um, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that he, Spike Lee, has the actors play themselves in their current age. They don't de-age them. They don't do it. You know, they don't change the actors or anything like that. I think I think a couple of scenes. There's one scene where you see all of them, all, all the five of them. 
Um, and I think they have stand-ins there, but otherwise, every time they flash back to scenes in in uh, the the Vietnam War, it is Delroy Lindo, it is Jonathan, uh, or not Jonathan Majors, uh, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, everybody like that, right? Um, and Chadwick, of course, is playing Chadwick because he uh, – does not survive the trip to Vietnam. Um, but yeah, I, I found that fascinating because they, they didn't necessarily, I guess they had, uh, not guess. I, I, I'm pretty sure they had uh, stunt doubles fill in for some of the action sequences, but for the most part, it looks like they are out there. Um, I was struck by a couple of sequences where, uh, you can noticeably see the sweat and just all the effort that has been kind of going into some of these action sequences on like Delroy Lindo and some of the other characters um, when we're fast flashing back to the Vietnam War. Like they're popping pain pills. They're complaining about <laughs> their back. Like there is a weird like geriatric side a little bit to some of that present day story. Right. I mean, it's, um, it's yeah, the kind of truth though. I mean, if the these past. guys if these guys were in Vietnam in, in the sixties, well, let's assume sure. that they were 18 to 20, then I mean, they're up there. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I think Spike Lee joked about, I don't have a $160 million budget to do the aging like they did in the Irishman. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's, I think visually it serves another purpose. Spike Lee is not, it's not uncommon for him to show you the movie making. This is something he does a lot. You know, yeah. he, mm-hmm. he doesn't necessarily throw you out of the movie, but he does want you to know that you are watching a movie. And it works a lot of times to his benefit. Sometimes it doesn't always work. But I think here it does work simply because as as Vin the uh the the guide says, people don't understand, people that have been in a war, it never ends for them. And right. so them going back and having them play themselves in these flashback scenes, they're telling the story. So you're getting their perspective and they're putting themselves, when they go to that looking glass, they're coming out as older and wiser, but wishing that they could tell their younger selves what they know. And having them out there, they're revisiting Vietnam, both literally, and they're coming back to get this gold. And in their heads, they kind of never left. And, and yeah. you know, the, the Del Rolindo says, when I, I see ghosts, and those ghosts are being haunted by the things they had to do out there and the things that they saw. And so I think it works that they're and it's it's sparing. You know, there's not a lot of Vietnam War sequences, you know, um, out there. But the ones that are there, you, you're right. You can see the sweat pouring off of them. Delroy Lindo is 67 years old. Um, yeah. And, and so you can kind of. I think it's intentional that Spike did that. I think if he didn't think it was going to work, he probably would have just had Chadwick Boseman be the flashback. You know, just have you see Norman, you don't see anybody else, and you kind of sure. just have that. So I think I think it works in this case. And in the Irishman, I was distracted by because the problem with the Irishman, and I love the Irishman, it was on my ten bus list, was that it was you know Mean Streets, Robert De Niro, but he was walking like. Robert De Niro from yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. They, they didn't they didn't cover up the the 
the performance capture angle of that. They they were just like, no, we'll 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 put you in a green mask or something like that. I don't I don't know how they did it, but you know, it was just like, yeah, we'll 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 replace your face. Don't don't worry about it. And it's just right. like he he hobbles over to kick that uh the guy on the, the screen stomp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's the scene everybody talks about. Yeah. See yeah. what's okay. So like I you know I don't need to defend the Irishman. Uh, I think it was like it was definitely on my top ten as well. I just remember seeing that scene and seeing the hesitation and kicking the guy and like finding that I kind of liked that little extra bit of reality because usually in movies, I don't like violence is a lot smoother in movies than it is in real life. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. So, so I mean like I still get it. Like, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch um, behind the scenes stuff on the Irishman because you see that they actually did put a lot of work into like having certain, moments like i think it was there's a point where al pacino um as jimmy hoffa has to like sit up or stand up from a couch really quick and um they talk about that scene where like you know they do it and then the guy who's in charge of like you know um their physical performances comes over to martin scorsese and he's like so that was fine but like you know he's just stood up like a seven-year-old and we need him to like stand up like a 50-year-old like a 30-year-old yeah and so they're like uh okay so you got to do it one more time and you really got to come out and he's like all right you're getting like one of these because i legitimately don't think my body can handle it um and he did it and it's amazing and so in this movie i i really liked there were a couple things first of all when you I, I'm a big proponent of stop de-aging people for God's sakes, like just use a younger actor. Right. However, in this movie, when you have, as we've said already, so much going on and you have this many characters, um, I think that it's actually and again, this is like the formal daring and boldness of Spike Lee for him to say, like, it's going to be easier for these people to track if it's just the same actors. And like, you yeah, know, sure, I don't want to de-age it, yeah. like, but and, like, and that makes that makes a lot of sense for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, was, so, it was easy. I appreciated that. I was watching it. And I was like, oh, this is it. I gra- this is great. I don't have to remember, like, oh, you know, is the guy with the hat the guy with the hat in the past and the future? No, because right. yeah, it's still Roy and, Lindo and you everywhere. Yeah, you don't have to have them like refer to each other by name all the time, so you can kind of figure out, right? You yeah, know? exactly. Right. You know, they don't have to say each other's name like every fourth word. Damn it, Paul. I told you, Paul. Right. Why Why you have to act like that again, Paul? Um, right. I, I kind of love too, Brian. I mean, related to that. I, I mean, just speaking the first time we even go to the past, like I, I love how Spike eases you in. We already talked about the aspect ratio change, but like, you know, as I, Odie, I think you mentioned like so often they start you know, with a close up on someone and then go into a flashback. So it's very clearly like their perspective on it. And that first time we get into Vietnam, you know, you have uh, Blanchard's score. It's just there's such a bombast to it. Like it, it's so gratuitously violent. And it's a, it, it's funny because it is very much like a, a B movie that, you know, so many black Vietnam soldiers never, never got. Like, I, I, I think that is, is so perfect that it, like, it was just very strange that I've seen some characterizations that the violence feels off, but I, I feel like it's, it's almost a, a perfect mel- meld of like what we thought Vietnam was in our head and the actual like gruesome cost of it. Right. Like it, it's weird. You were, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was, I was going to say it's him kind of 
mocking in some ways things like missing in action and, sure. and Rambo and the Rambo that Stallone made before this last one. So his second to last Rambo, not not first Blood Part Two. Although you can make sure. a case for that too. And, and the Green Berets, which if you've seen the Green Berets, is probably the most violent G-rated movie ever made, uh, the John Wayne movie. But it's it's absurd. It's absurdly violent, and I think in some ways Lee is kind of saying, okay, well, they made all these movies with a bunch of white guys blowing people up and there's gore all over the place. Now I'm going to do this for my little flashback scenes to kind of both serve as commentary and kind of like mockery. Um, so I think that's why I think that's why he does it that way. And they even mentioned that, you know, they, they, they're trying to win the war. You know, in the 80s, they sent Chuck Norris and Stallone out there to try to win the war. Yeah. This is a line where they're in the Apocalypse Now bar, uh, where, where I, think, it, I think it's Clark Peters who says it. Yeah, he's, they're, they're trying to, like, if not win the war in reality, it's like win back the ego lost during the war. It's like, well, you yes. know, even if we, you know, limped with our tail between our legs, we'd still go back and save the men that we lost. Which are only there because, yeah. again, we limped away with our tail between our legs. I think right. I think that in a movie like this, uh, a good rule of thumb is if a lot of the shooting is like spray and pray, suppressive fire, fully automatic, and a majority of the on-screen deaths are headshots, you know that the director has their tongue in their cheek. Yeah, but hmm. when there is a scene where the when they shoot the Vietnamese guys who are talking about poetry and their girlfriends, oh God, that's yeah. kind of the reversal of what you see in these other scenes, in these other movies. It's this kind of him flipping the script on what you normally see in these movies, where the guys like, "Oh, my girlfriend is home, and we're gonna go back, and I love her, and we have babies," and then all of a sudden it gets head blown off. You know, this happens yeah. in so many war movies. This is kind sure. of the opposite of what, what happens in those. The movie that, that was interesting. The movie treads that line a lot um, because it, it is, you know, for for uh, it's how the best to put this. This is a movie that uh, is obviously talking about um, the black experience in Vietnam, uh, really across all wars in the history of America. Um, they even go back as far as Crispus Attucks, which I was right. like, yeah, awesome. Glad we're talking about him. Um, it's it, the the thing that you get concerned about is. <laughs> What are they going to do about the fact that, like, if gunshots and explosions are to ensue, the clear, obvious antagonist during those is going to be the Vietnamese, which could be problematic. Um, And I think this movie smartly steps past that by. And this is something that could work at cross purposes with what the movie is trying to do, but it very smartly keeps every Vietnamese character human. It, it does have the subtitles that tell you that like this isn't some foreign enemy that's probably talking about how they can't wait to like urinate on an American flag. Like they're talking right. about their their girlfriends thinking that they're heroes and like talking about knitted scarves and stuff and, and poems. And, and then, you know, it, it is like you said, it's a reversal, you know, usually in in these movies, it's a guy who's like, this is my lady. I can't wait to go home and start a family. And then he's dead. It's, it's the American and yeah. he's dead. And that's kind of getting yeah. riled up for you know more carnage against the quote unquote enemy. Yeah. So I think him doing that is conscious decision. And also the even kind of the, the quote bandits 
you know, that, that are pulled out of Treasure Sierra Madre even has someone say, we don't need no stinking badges. Yeah, <laughs> that, was which, the, that was the moment where I almost clapped in my house alone. <laughs> which, which is technically, is technically the line from Blazing Saddles. Sure. <laughs> it's not the actual line from, it's, it's a, I think it's one of the few times that it's an improvement on the original line, <laughs> actually. Uh, <laughs> it's cleaner this It's a way. little more clunky in Treasure of Sierra Madre. Yeah. It's, it's much, much clunky you're in charge of the Sierra Madre, but you know, that's just, again, one of his, he, he knows that, you know, that he did this. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, love- like when, when those, when the, when the, when the bandits, you know, they come and they're like, that was supposed to be for us. Right. And you know, it's like, you, you might think like, well, this guy might not have even been alive when Vietnam was going on, but like that, that wealth. And they make this point in the movie. They talk about reparations. They talk about using the money to help the cause. Like, yeah, like money does that. Generational wealth is a thing. Like, you know, these people might be doing the things they're doing because they never got their recompense for helping the Americans. Um, Exactly. What happens (laughs) if they had gotten that money originally? Would they be out here bandits working for Jean Renault or or, you know, what what could have happened to those people? So even if it's throwaway, Lee has that in there for you to pick up if you are on that wavelength you kind of realize that when they say this money was for us technically speaking they're not wrong yeah no and they're like the you know it's got usa stamped on it it's ours and it's like well you know like and then also that the one of the when the bandits come back like one of them is like upset because he he says like his brother died and at this point the words brother have been used in the movie so much that you don't know if he means blood relation or just like brother in arms but it really doesn't matter right Right. Mm-hmm. Because those bonds are are so are so deep. I mean, like Delroy Lindo was not a great father. You know, that that blood bond, that actual genetic blood bond was not strong for him. But he's still very much a friend of his friends. You know, the the five bloods, you know, and those right. are the you ones bond that you in really war bond and with. you don't that bond is never broken. You yeah. go to war and you don't you survive that it's something that is assured bond that maybe is even stronger than familial ones which i think is what lee is kind of going for you know with that i mean the the introduction of majors character is a little clunky and i think you know there's some messy aspects of the script that i was willing to kind of like acknowledge but they didn't really kind of you know hurt the movie for me but they were definitely kind of like in some ways, it was almost like, again, Spike saying, you know, the, this is a movie. And so we're going to just fast forward past this part. And it's not mm-hmm. going to be too much of an explanation. Why is he there? I mean, you really start to think about it. You know, they he loves his father and he's worried his father is losing his mind because of PTSD. But, you know, him showing up, not knowing anything about Vietnam. So, you know, there, there's some elements that kind of are like you can see the seams showing from the original script and how it got through to Lee and, and Wilmot and how they merged these two things together. But it didn't really bother me so much. I was like, okay, well, he's here and I accept it. And, and Majors is so good in the movie that, you know, you know, you're willing to forgive that a little. And for Can me, we, the kind of love some well, of those we all want to talk too. once, apparently. I'm sorry. Right, sorry. <laughs> We're just really excited about this movie. It's a good <laughs> movie. I like finished I just, watching it. I was super excited to talk about it. I'm glad we're here. Um, I, I wanted to mention the the introduction, not the introduction of Majors, but uh, the the next sequence that we kind of have with him. With where, his mimosa? <laughs> yes, where he's basically being talked down to by all four of mm. them. 
And the way it's shot is so interesting where he's just holding his mimosa up like like a shield almost. And <laughs> it, the way the camera is angled, it's kind of angled down at him, even though more than likely he kind of sits at eye level with all of them. Um, yeah, I, I, I found it such an interesting way of just setting that tone of all four of them kind of live and loom much higher than the than he does probably because he's been hearing about you know uh, eddie and melvin and all of them for such a long time maybe this is the first time that he's really met them and it's a drill sergeant shot you know, mm-hmm. you see these movies, it's a drill sergeant mm-hmm. just towering over you, and he's there. And they, they even say, you're a buck private in this mm-hmm. outfit. <laughs> and so I think Lee is kind of also, again, playing with that. You've seen it in other movies where the drill sergeant towers over you, and you're kind of like, you know, hovering, kind of looking down, like crouching down because this guy is so intimidating. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a well-known shot from, um... help me out, guys. Full metal jacket. Full metal jacket. Yeah. Yeah. The, the finger pointed right down the barrel of the camera, that's, like you are right, Phil. Right. You are less than yeah. I'm not going to try to do Arlie Army. I know that I cannot. <laughs> um, yeah. I so to that to that the concept of the messiness. Like when David first showed up, I was like, I understood that he was Del Orlando's son, but it was difficult. I think for the first I don't know like five minutes he was on screen to really understand his character. I think that is a sign of messiness, but like as that clears up, you know, it didn't, it didn't really matter to me. I think that there's stuff that in this movie, you have to kind of accept that it is playing with the tropes of a, uh, an action, you know, return to war B movie. I mean, the, the character of, of Hetty um, played by uh, Melanie theory. Theory. Okay, great. Um, yeah. I mean, she, she's, you know, <laughs> She's the a classic in the long line of like the pretty foreign aid worker or doctor or whomever sure. who's not part of the war, but is ancillary to it and will become important. And she, her character. But they make her a little more active. I did like that. Yeah. Like, right, but, it's yeah. Not, she's not quite that. Right. And she, uh, you know, uh, it's it's one of these things where it's like she's she and her, her co- colleagues are caught in the middle of this horrible situation. It is, you know, weird how how quickly the allegiances shift and they go from being like hostages to being like we're going to make it through this together. But again, that's a trope. It's a thing yes. that happens and like, you know, it I think that the the only issue for me in my brain in in first accepting that is that you're like, you know, is feels like and this is a thing that happens a lot of times in Spike Lee movies. I remember I had an issue with Black Klansman, um, a movie that I really, really liked. Um, just the fact that like it couldn't seem to decide if uh, the Klan was like an imminent threat to United States, you know, homeland security, or if they're a bunch of bumbling fucking nitwits in a cartoonish register. And you just kind of have to accept that like both things can be true at once, depending on the scene and what he's trying to say. And but, so. But the, the- but the scarier villain is the one that is stupid, you know, because then using Delroy mm. Lindo as an example, Clockers, his character, Rodney, is the scary guy. But he is certainly he's unpredictable because he does things that you wouldn't expect 
someone who is in his status to do. You know, so he he's he's unpredictable. He's more dangerous because he's not going to do the smart thing that you're thinking that you would do. I think Lee kind of puts that in for the clan is that no, they're not playing you know forty dimensional chess. They're idiots. <laughs> they just happen to be dangerous idiots. I think that's also something that runs through a lot of Spike Lee's movies, not, sure. not just this. You know. Yeah, I I did think um, so the the character of Paul. Who who is again like a reason that a lot of these characters have to adapt so quickly? Um, and I, honestly, there is a part of me that's like, you know, maybe I can get behind the fact that these landmine people would totally be on these people's side once Paul leaves because everyone was really afraid of Paul, uh, rightly so. And if he's gone, you got to think that these guys are better than that. Um, but I mean, his character is just like such a great, complex, can't pin him down you know, distillation of the kind of like anger and uncertainty and, you know, the kind of chip on the shoulder that, that does drive people, not just white people, but like all kinds of people to vote for Trump. I mean, not a lot of minorities voted for Trump, but almost in every demographic more voted for Trump than voted for Mitt Romney. Right. Because he, he does tap into something which is horrifying. (laughs) Right. And, and, and if you, Lee said that he added that because he wanted them to have some kind of tension because, again, if you've gone to mm. war with someone, you're willing to put up with a lot of things. And, of course, mm. there are people out in war who that craziness kind of maybe saved your life, you know. And, and for him, being kind of the MAGA guy, in a way, it's it's a troll, but it's, it's kind of, like I said, it's the long con here. He's not just playing troll for a second. He's going to continue to follow this through and really, like, play – Visually and character-wise, I mean, this hat that represents Donald Trump went to Vietnam. Donald Trump did not go to Vietnam. <laughs> I know that sure. Lee puts that, that, you know, he doesn't put the hat on until they're out there in, in the jungle. If you notice that he doesn't have the hat on until that moment. And then they, the guys are like, oh, come on, you're going to wear that shit out here. And so, you know, he, and then the hat doesn't just stay with him. It goes to the, the Vietnamese, it goes to Jean Reno. So yeah. in a way, if this hat is, you know, blame, as, as Bilga says in his review on Vulture, this hat is kind of like the blame and it's being passed from the Americans to the French to the Vietnamese and everybody is corrupted by by war and mm-hmm. this hat is kind of symbolic of that. Um, and it stays you know, in Vietnam at the end, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so does Paul, alas, uh, among other characters, and, and it, it, that kind of brings us to the music part of this. Um, Lee has a score by Terrence Blanchard, but he also has the What's Going On album mm-hmm. by Marvin Gaye, which, of course, you know, has a lot of it. It's the how it was made, how it was put out, when it was put out, has a lot of bearing on the Vietnam era it's 1971 when this came out you know Barry Gordy yeah. did not want it to come out he said it would harsh the mellow of the white folks who love Motown and, and Marvin Gaye you know put his foot down and, and you know said you know I, I want to make this album and he, Barry Gordy had just had a fight with Stevie Wonder who wanted to leave uh, and had to give him control of his music so <laughs> he had to kind of kind of acquiesce to Marvin and have him do this album and it, it opens. It opens the inner city blues, which is technically the last song on on, on what's going on. And when they get to the jungle, Dorlando starts singing "What's Happening, Brother," out there. He's singing that song, and then there's the acapella. What's going on? That's going through, which I think is the, probably the best use of 
a song from the album outside of Dory Lindo singing God is Love as he digs his own grave, which again is another yeah. tie to Church of Sierra Madre, the bandits who they always had to dig their own grave in that movie. Mm-hmm. And then you hear them get shot mm-hmm. off screen and him singing you know, this particular song um, is just kind of, it's harrowing and, and Lee's use of that album as a commentary as Marvin Gaye wanted to make on what was actually going on. Literally it, it's, it's very striking. And he, he's done that with Stevie Wonder and he's done it with Living for the City and, and, and Jungle Fever and he's done it in other movies where he takes a song and really takes the context and beats it into this movie. So it has the same context as it did absent the movie, but it elevates sure. what he's trying to tell you in the picture. And I think that um, it just it, it was it was almost kind of weird for me because this is one of those moments where where Lee's sensibilities clash in a really fun or meaningful or just i don't know like cataclysmic awesome way clash right with with what this movie should be because in a movie like this directed during the time when it was you made in like the 80s paul would run away do his own thing have a change of heart and then go back and save his goddamn friends and yeah you see that happening you see (laughs) of course he's been bitten by a snake so that's not great for him. Um, you know, but he he falls, he's tripped up, he loses his gold, and then he has this conversation with Storm and Norman, and you're like, oh, this is it. He's about to, you know, go and save his friend, and then just hard cut to him digging his own grave. Right. And you know, his his thing with Storm and Norman that kind of brings in all the symbolism of trying to make some kind of closure's a horrible word, and I don't want to use it, but it kind of reconciliation storm and norman and it's great that charlie bozeman plays him because charlie bozeman is already mythical i mean he's played yeah. every famous black person you can know he's gonna play me one day hopefully he's played <laughs> thurgood marshall and james brown and jackie robinson and and freaking black panther so he's just he's shorthand and sometimes lee uses yeah. shorthand for this he's mythical already so he doesn't have to do much and having him kind of represent what you already know, because you pretty much know that the reason why Paul is so messed up about Norman is that he that he accidentally killed him. You know this. Yeah. This is a trope in every war movie, right? And we using that kind of as some way to try to give Paul some peace before you know he's dying, or just to kind of show, you know, say, you went out here and you were a young guy and you came back and you're messed up, and this you can it's okay. You can be messed up. But, well, but, you know, but, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I think I think one thing that's interesting is that uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, and th- there were some minor conflicts before Vietnam, if if I recall, but Vietnam was really the first war where friendly fire was something that definitely happened, and we had to adjust to the fact that, like, we were not fighting in in smooth, easy to understand enemy lines, right? Because right, um, even in Korea, you still had definite sides. Mm-hmm. But Vietnam, you know, I mean, there's a reason that, like, that that they say, like, you know, he's stuck in the jungle, like, because the jungle is not a great place to fight a war if you're not used to it. So, like, right. yeah, friendly fire became. A massive thing. Not only that, but like there was so much tension within the ranks that like the concept of fragging your officer 
really oh, exploded yes. there. Yes. I mean, and yeah. that's I, I, I read an entire book where they were talking about like all the all the infantry was basically talking about like killing their 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 leader throughout because they just felt like it, he was putting them in danger constantly right. with his just kind of uh, in, ineptitude. And yeah, that's definitely something that happened back then. And then Lee speaks to that when Hanoi Hanna announces to them that Martin Luther King has been assassinated and how they all want to fight. And Storm and Norman says, you have to go through me first. And it's and, and Oliver Stone, who was originally supposed to direct this, by the way, um, there, there's, there's some there's some platoon elements. There's, in fact, Storm and Norman is a shot that is pretty much a mirror of Willem Dafoe in, in platoon. Um, uh, uh, it's almost the same kind of position that, that he's in, uh, and so there's that kind of fight within ranks. Also, and I think this is important to kind of bring up: Vietnam was really the first war that was on the nightly news that yeah. came into your television set mm-hmm. graphically. You know, they didn't censor that footage. I, I was, you know, I remember seeing documentaries about it. I mean, I was too young to kind of know what was going on. But I remember seeing these this footage, and it would be just so graphic, and it, to the point where they stopped allowing you to see war images, you know, with the Iraq and everything. They wouldn't allow you to see it because it changed your perception of what war was and what you were fighting. Well, even and more they, than that, it's it's that they the the government got really good at at making war or showing you the war they wanted you to see. Like yes. I I was a kid when Operation Desert Storm happened. And I couldn't wait for the news, man, because you'd see those like, you know, guided missile shots. You'd see the tanks like I was I was all about it. That shit looked awesome. Like it's I was I I I mean, I mean, hell, just think about the the first time that we went into Iraqi freedom and, you know, the the. the bombings that you would see going on on the news. I mean, yeah, it, it shock was, and awe became a concept. Right. I mean, you know, it's, and it, it is a way to sanitize and, and kind of, uh, blockbuster the concept of, of war. I mean, like, you know, we've scrubbed the images of the death, but we've kept the mayhem because the mayhem sells. The mayhem sells. And, and it's, you look at it and you, kind of realize that by having Lee put that documentary footage in as graphic as it is to remind you that you know this is what you were seeing and, and when people came back from Vietnam you know they weren't welcome because of what you saw mm-hmm. on, on the screen so it became less so patriotism wasn't as jingoistic as it is now when now it's rah 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 like yeah. you said you know you see this and it allows as I said in my, my review that it allows Drew Brees to say that his grandfathers were more patriotic than the black folks that fought beside him, or he just disavows they even exist because that's kind of what you're being fed, what you've been Mm -hmm. fed is that kind of patriotism of, of without sacrifice is what I I said, you know, we just the rah, rah, rah. There's, there's a couple of things that I want to touch on to that level, as far as like what this movie does with uh, depictions of war and kind of how society has looked at depictions of war. I mean, if you think about World War II, I mean, like, if that had been beamed into our our houses every night, I don't know how long it would have gone on for. I mean, the, the invasion of Normandy alone would have been enough, you know, for modern day talking heads to be like, oh, is geez. it worth yeah. it? 
Like, you know, seeing these images coming off of Omaha Beach, like, should we, like, are the French worth it? Like, can we just not? And then you have movies like, um, uh, like, like Shutter Island that are all about the psychological toll that seeing those horrors can take on a person and, uh, that taking revenge, you know, and, and then, you know, meeting atrocity with atrocity does to a human. I mean, you know, it's it's rough and it's something that like it, it's almost like a, a rubber band like in World War Two, no one at home really knew what was going on and the people came back and no one knew how to help them and and then in Vietnam almost like too much information sans context came back so this people like the soldiers came back hurting in the same way they did from World War Two, but now people knew what war looked like and they were not fans of that image and so like even worse than like a lack of understanding or a lack of empathy just through ignorance, it was like hatred because right. like, how could a countryman of mine take part in these, these awful things that had happened. And I think that, um, I'm almost going through too much right now, but this movie is just so dense. Um, I think that there is a scene in this movie where I think it's, it's so, it's such a realistic depiction of what it is like to, to die from bleeding out when your limbs have been blown off that it's it's um it's distressing it's and and lee here's the thing about the human body as a person who's had to uh like be a field medic on uh boy scout camping trips which doesn't sound like it should be that bad (laughs) but it totally can be i have seen the blood spurts in time with the pulse of a human heart um and it's it's gross. There's a reason that people faint, you know, and luckily <laughs> I, I didn't. Um, but so, you know, they, they show um, that famous image of um, the South Vietnamese mm-hmm. officer executing the person in cuffs. Yeah, yeah. I had never seen that. Oh, my God. That's you, you I just mean, normally normally you just see the picture. You, didn't, you don't yeah, right. normally yeah. see the footage. And you know, so you see I, the seen it. you see the footage and it is it's gunshot body hits the floor. And then, you know, you see the the the, the, the spurts of blood. Right. No, the spurts yeah, of blood sorry. coming out of the dead man's yeah, head. Yeah. It's yeah. it's distressing. And it, you see that. And, um, you know, I was one of those uh, shitty early Internet kids who went on Kazaa and downloaded Faces of Death. So oh, I no. had seen that. before. You know what, guys? <laughs> Back off. We all had childhoods. Well, I, it was on video when I was a kid, so. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm, I'm showing my age here, but the in kind of bring us, us back to 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 Delroy Lindo for a second. The characters in this movie, what, what's striking is that you don't have movies where you deal with the PTSD distress of non-white characters, mm-hmm. and so this is I think this is probably why Lee made this movie was going to show you what war can do. Because if you think about it, think about all the Vietnam War movies that you have, Platoon and the fame, the big ones, The Deer Hunter, all of these movies coming home and so on and so forth. You know, you, you, the best you have like one black character, you have Keith David, you have somebody, you know, you have a, the, the, the Clint Eastwood movie, you have Mario Van Peebles, and you don't really get them. They don't really, they're side characters. And for, for yeah. Lindo, there's that scene where he speaks to the camera and he does his big monologue and it ends with his upraised fist. And, you know, him saying right on, right on, just like Marvin Gaye says and what's going on. Mm-hmm. That scene, 
in his scene on the boat where he freaks out, I had such a hard time watching the scene if I'm doing a close-up. And I've seen the movie twice. And like it was the first time I watched it, it was so painful that it kind of looked away. And the second time I watched it, I watched, you know, kind of knowing. And and this is a really good portrayal of someone who's cracking up from PTSD. I, I suffer from PTSD. And I think maybe that was why it was so painful for me to watch some of this stuff happening because I recognize some of the things that he was doing and mm-hmm. in, in, in watching it. But you never see this. And Lindo's performance is so good that you, you know, it, it's, it wraps you into this and you almost kind of are having the panic attack that he's having. And I tried to think of other movies that would represent this, not even just for a black character, for a white character, you know, going this intently into their brain into their madness at that moment and i think it's very important in kind of humanizing this character you know and understanding him later on how he's kind of cracking up you know then his whole line about god you're a trickster after he falls and you know the gold is up there's almost almost like an aesop favorite fairy tale yeah how this happens to him and how he's just like you know i went through all this and here we are and just fuck it you know i i I, i'm just going to accept the fact that God doesn't want me to be happy, <laughs> you know, and I think it, it's kind of the key to his performance and how the other characters act around him, how Otis is kind of like the uh, the stabilizing influence of these guys. And then, again, it's a trope from other war movies, but you kind of see it a little more in, in this being played by, you know, actors of color, black, black actors, instead of just your typical, you know, white characters. I think it adds something to it because you, movies kind of determine how you kind of see life in a lot of ways or how you see a character, or how you see war, like you said about Ra Ra earlier. And I think using those tropes can be a powerful thing in humanizing people. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, masculine, masculine pain, um, is not something that gets shown in a lot of movies. Um, yeah. And it's, it's incredibly it's damaging. It's still odd. It's still well, odd when you see it, which this is crazy. Is one of, I mean, this is one of, <laughs> we, I bring this up every now and then when like we watch a movie with like two male friends and people on the internet are like, oh, you know, they're gay. And I'm just like, do you realize how damaging that is? That you're Didn't telling a generation yeah. of young men that like, if you have a friendship with like, like I, this is such a, I hate bringing up Marvel, but I'm doing it. Like, if you have a friendship like Cap and Bucky, you know, if you have a friendship <laughs> where you're willing to risk your life for your best friend, that means that you are, you know, innately romantically In attracted love with to them. Secret. Right. It, it right. that's that's super damaging. Mm-hmm. Like because, it, and it's it doesn't even like break down to homophobia, but just like a sense of like your own agency over the way that you're you're viewed you know or like the desire to not be misunderstood or like you basically then just told a whole generation of people like well you can't have any platonic friendships like that's you can't have a deep relationship with them you know you can't yeah yeah i I do think that 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 is a a reflection of the lack of that situation well, yeah, actually playing out on screen though. Yes. I mean, there's, there's like, a hunger that, for it. That's, that's yes. for sure. But like, also it's, it's just, it's, there's a lack of, so there's a lack of homosexual representation. Um, there's also just a lack of friendship representation. So it comes on and no one knows what to yeah. do with it. And then like we were saying, you know, the masculine pain, like coming home from war and not knowing what to do with these emotions and these feelings. Um, yeah. Masculine pain isn't shown a lot. Um, 
and and especially you know black masculine pain it's because right. the way that hollywood yeah. acts is like who's the toughest guy i don't know but uh you know he's probably black because Can, that's it's uh, racist as shit but it's the way that things have worked for so long i mean uh, on on that note, can we talk about Tien a little bit and uh, her 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 kind of role in this film? And I'm sure. I'm curious, like wh- where y'all kind of see her, I guess origin. Wh- was she a local? I, 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 I ass- don't even know what the phrase it anymore. I, I assume <laughs> I, I she was a sex worker. worker. Yeah, yeah, was, she was a sex worker. She she says yeah. that she was a sex worker, and this is this is not an uncommon thing. You know, I, I think yeah. too brief amount of time is devoted to this in the movie, but I still think it's effective in that there were GIs who went and had children with these people in Vietnam, or not just in Vietnam, you know, in World War II, and then Mudbound kind of brings that up with the Jason Mitchell character. Um, You know, so these things did exist and there are people who did not know who their father was because Mm -hmm. he was GI somewhere in some war, whether it's, you know, American or French or whatever. And having her be there, but also having her see she's a survivor in this. She's She's become a financial, you know, broker, a mover and shaker in this world. And she's, she has a hardened kind of exterior to her just like these guys do because she's kind of lived a different wartime experience than they did but she was still in a wartime experience and that whole sequence where Clark Peters kind of makes the connection and it's silently done I think the two actors play that so beautifully mm-hmm. and it's not like there's no over dramatic no you know music there's just like him looking and him kind lingering of coming to that yeah and yeah. coming to that kind of like realization that hey this is what is happening and and it's played out so wonderfully and it's there and so I think he wanted to make a comment about that and also about you know, mixing, juxtaposing David and uh, Paul's relationship, mm. which they had their entire life, to Otis's relationship with this young woman who is his daughter. Right, and she um, has every reason to be mad at him because, I mean, you know, he, he technically abandoned her. Not that he knew about she her, and did it on to be purpose. Mad at Tien also, she has yeah. every reason to be mad Absolutely. at Tien as well. But but she's but you know it's it's a uh, the concept of like you know just and it goes again it goes back to the concept of blood like you know if you treat your family like dirt they're gonna hate you if you you know if you treat your friends like family they're gonna love you and it's clear that in that family Tien and her daughter love each other because they knew how to treat each other and they were maybe all they were maybe they were definitely all each other had right um yeah and that's again again there's you could unwrap that whole scene over the course of like a 300 page book i mean he is a soldier who is viewed as less than other soldiers she was a person in a country at war who was viewed and you know not like it's not like a particularly rich country but even amongst those people she was viewed as less than everyone else and then they right. got together he had some level of power because he is the person who purchased the sex and then he, he could have ruined her life without even knowing about it like the power structures and the concepts of exploitation that play out within that scene are well, she mentions that she mentions that there was difficulty after that with her and her daughter, and yeah. then they, they mm-hmm. you know, that the white soldiers taught her the N word. But you know, at the same token, you see that she's a survivor, she's a fighter, and now she's in this, you know, 
she's become a mover and shaker yeah. after all this time. And I think it, it's an interesting kind of way. It's, Lee is not exactly the best director slash writer in terms of dealing with women characters. It's always been kind of, in my opinion, one of his weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's he's better and sometimes he's worse. Um, and I think that these characters, he gave them a little more agency and interest and power than yeah. you would normally see in this type of film. To that end, I think that working within this genre really is a strength for him in terms of his his weakness with female characters. Because within these genres, you know, these women, I won't say that they're consistently one note, but it doesn't ask too much of them. Um, and and he is able to. Yeah. And he's able to imbue them with a lot more just by treating them like human beings. Right. Um, so that that works out in his favor. Um, I just want to like, say, like, I, I just talking about like the concept of like GIs going over and fathering children. I just, I was like 13 when I first heard the Clash song "Straight to Hell," and um, yeah, you know, and I remember listening to that, and I was like, it, this was around the time when I was like, wait, songs could be about more than just being in love or not being in love anymore. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember listening to that song and be like, holy shit, this is dark. Um, and it was the song that made me fall in love with the clash. Cause I was like, who can make this kind of like catchy up tempo punk song about this obscure socio-political concept. Um, so if you haven't heard it, take a listen. Um, not right now though. And that whole, that whole album is kind of complex too. Cause it's co-opting other cultural ideas. Like in a way, like I, I like, is that Sandinista? I think that's on. But like, th- there's definitely some complex like cultural. I think it's, I think it's uh, combat rock. Or com- oh, I'm sorry, it is combat rock. You're, you're right. I, maybe I'm confusing Sandinista and, and combat rock. But uh, I'll I'll say I, what I wanted to briefly pivot to the other the one other Vietnamese character we haven't discussed, who I think is the strongest in the film, and that's that's Vin, played mm-hmm. by uh, Johnny Ngoyan. Uh, Oh, I'm sure it's a different pronunciation because it's Vietnamese. I'm sorry, Vietnamese yeah. listeners. Um, I, anyway, I thought I thought Vin was was really good in this uh, yes. as kind of the you know we've kind of talked about these two spectrums uh, of someone like Quan and you know someone like Tian or you know the Greek chorus of uh, uh, I, I'm sorry of Henwa uh, Hanna, but I, I thought. Vin is is so interesting in the ways that, you know, he doesn't fall into an easy idea that he's with Quan, like he doesn't ever betray them, but he subtly shows a number of ways that he's been shaped. You know, he, I I believe he calls Vietnam the American War. War, Uh, Yeah. Is that, is that the language? Okay. Yep. Yeah, he says the American War. He he makes just a number of comments. You know, when those uh, Vietnamese men who were part of the Viet Cong are giving them a look at the bar, like there's just all of these. I, I just felt um, one. I just think his performance is excellent, but I, I think they really do a good job in kind of communicating a number of things. Whether it's in um, the scene, I can't remember who mentioned the. The boat scene where he's trying to give him a chicken, but right. um, the whole way that situation is handled and and the way that, you know, the slur for Vietnamese people comes into it. Like uh-huh. he was the one really who like I could have taken more of him in the in, in the movie because I think he adds such an interesting commentary without 
feeling like uh, he's didactic or, or right. anything. And he mentions that you know this war tour put brother against brother. He he he's given yeah. all. Lee gives him a lot of kind of dialogue and situations that reflect this side of the story. You know, and he's there, and you you kind of think you wonder is he going to betray them? If he's he going to be your typical war movie villain or someone sure. last minute's going to turn? And he's now he's your guide for in a lot of ways, not just your guide physically bringing them there and at the end of the movie you know he's one of the people who's still standing and who brings back some of those reparations if you will to 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 the vietnamese people you know that that and i wanted to kind of talk about the end of the movie if we could um you sure. know how lee does what he does in malcolm x and a bunch of other movies where he kind of just basically kind of drags you into the present and he has these things that where I said that the goal was this, you know, big kind of ghost in the machine. What I meant about that was kind of at the end, it has this kind of like happy, you know, they, they're giving $2 million to Black Lives Matter. They're giving this money to the landline people and all this stuff. This money is being used to kind of help make today better. And it's kind yeah. of almost like, it is likely has done this before. It's kind of like, kind of trying to give you a little bit of hope at the end of the movie and at the end of clockers you know he has mckay pfeiffer's character live and i had an issue with that but then i realized you know the movie itself would be just so kind of like bleak and nihilistic if he didn't offer anything outside of that and he has control over it. you know he's telling the story so now he can kind of bend the story and give it a little bit more of an ending that you wouldn't necessarily get in reality again him showing this is a movie but at the purpose of that it's kind of giving you some optimism and hope. imagine if you could just give two million dollars to your cause you know or help you know that kind of thing. And it's an interesting that he ends with Mar- Martin Luther King saying, you know, Langston Hughes' poem about that because in a way it almost ties back to what actually happens with all that money that, that they get from this mm. gold that was buried. It was meant to go, you know, how everything kind of ties together in this trope. And he's extending it out to a reality that doesn't exist, but hey, I'm, I made this movie and I can write this ending. You know, so th- th- I think it's kind of interesting in how it, it breaks. I know some people complained about how that kind of throws you out of the movie, but I was thinking like you've been thrown out of this movie like 17 times before this has happened. <laughs> Getting <laughs> mad at the bull for throwing you off again. It's like that's sort of its right. job. What, are, what have you been doing? Why are you still here if that's a problem you're going to have? Right. Well, I think I want to I, I want to talk about this a, a little bit, guys, because I'm I'm wrestling a little bit with some of the things we're talking about with Paul uh, in the sense of, you know, we've spoken a little bit and and I think this movie is very persuasive in showing what PTSD does to him, but I still did find some of the, some of his actions uh, post them running into Simon Hetty and uh, yes. Thank you. Uh, I, I did find some of those, they felt writerly in a way that didn't feel like like clever to me in the same way like we've already spoken about the way that like it's totally a trope that Hetty, <laughs> simon and Seppa would just happen to be right there when the landmine yeah. thing happened we, we, and you know like it, it was weird because i was thinking about miracle and saint anna how like one character finds out about something because a newspaper literally falls from the sky yeah. <laughs> like and that's that's all over Spike's films. And and I'm fine with that. But for I think what was weird is I almost needed some of those decisions. It, it was then, you know, 
after that when he does monologues or like things like I don't think the dialogue falters at all in this movie, but I don't always under I, I almost think this movie has too much action and I don't really want it pared down, which is a massive contradiction, but <laughs> you just want a longer I, I movie. <laughs> no, I I can't figure it like there's something a little bit it's not cheap because I know what he's doing. Like you want to give them that moment of glory in the climax. And you're, you're totally right. Like uh, the moment of subversion, when it goes to him talking to norm to him, like, you know, digging the ditch, that's, that's wonderful. But just some of that in between stuff almost feels like it overcorrects. Like there's too much that happens in a short period. And I, I again, I, I'm, not resolved one way or the other about this, but I, I can't pinpoint it, but something about that feels clunky to me and in, in a way that those other things, you know, feel cute or clever, which is totally fine. Um, and, and I'm just cur- curious, did you guys feel any missteps in, in Paul's arc or uh, feel a little bit strange until almost his performance smoothed it over? As I implied earlier, I was I mean, you know, Paul, Paul's a complex character. Um, I feel like if, sure. you, if you wanted to give me a whole movie that was just a character study of Paul, like the four days before he went to Vietnam, um, I would Same. have no problem with that. Um, that <laughs> yeah, would be sure. awesome to me. I um, it's it's a, I mean, it's th- there is a sloppiness to the movie that I think is inherent in the genre and with everything that wants to happen. I, I, I do kind of wish that there had been more. Of like when they first meet and they're talking about President Fake Bone Spurs, you know, and and kind of digging into that because I I find, um, I find the reality of uh, minority Trump voters to be uh, interesting. I don't know. It's it's uh, intellectually um, captivating for me. Um, there was a podcast that I listened to in the run up to the 2016 election. Um, where the host, uh, Adam Todd Brown, uh, continuously seemed to be able to predict what was going to happen. Uh, he said Trump's going to get the nomination, and if he can convince even just slightly more minority voters to vote for him than uh, Mitt Romney did, he's going to win. And that's exactly what happened, and I was terrified. Um, because this guy, you know, he's a comedian, but he seemed to be able to call these things. But he was able to say, like, what Trump will do is that he will chip away because there's disaffected people in in every race, you know, in every right. class. And if you can convince them yeah. that someone else is the enemy. Um, and so like having Delroy Lindo say like, you know, the immigrants, we got to build the wall like that is true. There is that argument does appeal to people that are not just, you know. Poor middle class or ultra rich white people like that's well, the thing what, that happened. What LBJ said, you know, if you convince them, you can pick their pocket. Yeah, you can point out and say this other person is, is the enemy, or this other person is robbing you. You can pick their pocket. Mm-hmm. So, and then that's that's not a, a, a new strategy. And for 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 Lindo to say that, and he also says there were atrocities on both sides, which I thought was a scripted line that Lee threw in. That I was like, okay, I can take or leave this one. This is maybe a little bit too showing too many show you showing your cards yeah. a little bit too many time, you know a little bit too much, but it, I mean if you think about it, you know these are older people these are baby boomers. Yeah, these are these <laughs> these guys could be okay boomers. They just happen to be black. 
And so, you know, so who voted for, you know, as my mother calls him, President Asshole? <laughs> they did. So, you know, and in a way, it's, 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 I, I know black people who voted for Donald Trump. So it's, it's, it, I think Lee is doing it more. Like I said, he's playing a long game on this particular thing, the troll, you know, yeah. but at the same time, he also makes Paul the most complex character in the picture. So he, now he's not just trolling Trump, he's trolling you. He, he wants you to kind of have the sympathy for this guy who is, in pain and, and, and may not necessarily be completely sane, but it, by the time he's digging his own grave, you have some kind of way. I think that the kind of turning point for, for Lindo's character is when he doesn't get the money, when he doesn't get the goalie, this is going to Norman, he says, and he falls sure. down. This is like one of those, you know, kind of pieces of irony that's blatant, but at the same time, his reaction is not what I was expecting. Normally, you expect him to be jumping up and down and screaming, like, you know, but now his, his kind of acceptance kind of paves the way for his kind of quote unquote reconciliation with Norman. But so sure. I think it's, that's Lindo's characters, his acting is sometimes more powerful than what he's been given to play. And, and sure. that's a great thing. But I think it also saves the, some of the messiness of the script. Yeah, I think, it, I think it saves the messiness. And it also sells what, again, is, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's odd because like you could say like this character only works because of this actor and it could be because um, the character is uh, weakly written or because the character is almost like too strongly written and that it takes an, a remarkable talent to be able to actually bring that across. And sometimes yeah. it's hard to tell. And I think this might be one of those moments. I think that, you know, in general, the um, one of the things that I, I kind of like about uh, Spike Lee is, is that he's not afraid to, to get sloppy, to be messy. Um, if it, if it is the movie that he wants to make. And like I said, in my, my opening review, like that's the kind of fearlessness and boldness that like I get from him as an artist. Um, and I think Delroy Lindo can deliver anything. I mean, like he has lines in, in, I'm going to say it. Uh, he has lines in, uh, David Mamet's heist that are insane. And, If you were a lesser actor, you wouldn't be able to deliver those. But when he when he gives the line, do you know why the chicken crossed the road? Because the road crossed the chicken. My <laughs> life was changed forever. <laughs> and um, he became like one of my favorite actors. And I would I would follow this man to the fires of hell just to watch him play. I don't know. Just anything. He's, he's, a he's damn memorable. Actor. He's memorable in the atrocious Gone in 60 Seconds remake. I think about his deliveries in that movie every once in a while, and I have no idea why, but he's that good. If you, and, uh, and he's great in the, in the, in the Very Bad Life Plus scenario, the Danny Boyle movies. He's the only good thing about that movie. Um, <laughs> he he's, plays an angel who endorses adultery, if I remember correctly. And he's one of the only good things about that. He, he's an actor who is so versatile, and he was unashamed to look unmacho, vulnerable, weak, petty. And a lot a lot of actors will let you do that to them. And he's one of those actors that can portray that. And fearlessly. I guess why Lee, you know, can put him in Crooklyn and can put him in clockers. Yeah. And have completely different portrayals, but you can see elements of both of those types of portrayals in both movies. They're just one is very, very low and one one is very, very high in terms of, you know, evil and violence um yeah. but they're there these these concepts are there you know i, I saw him do joe turner's coming gone which is the Wilson wilson play i saw him on broadway it's 
dating myself here. This is like 1988. Um, first time I'd ever heard of Del Rolando. I mean, he's a, um, oh man, I had a thing to say. Now I can't remember what it was. The, the well, thought I, has like legitimately fled my brain to the point where I just need to tell someone else to talk. <laughs> well, can we just, I, I, I do, I, I could seriously talk about Del Rey Lindo for another hour, but I, I do want to mention a few of the other performers. So, so Jonathan Majors is someone we've talked about just a little bit. And I, I was one of the few people who thought he was a, a little bit, um, not a tropey. There, there was a certain, um, overly mannered quality to him in the last man in San Francisco. But I, I really loved him in, in this. Like he just has such a, uh, he is one of my favorite actor qualities, which he's a great listener. Like yeah. <laughs> every conversation he's so engaged and, and involved. Yeah. And there's such a, there's such a patience to the way he delivers his lines. And I, I just like, I really found him, to be uh, just something that really brought together this film, especially considering he begins as a hanger on yes. and, you know, you're, you're wondering how are they going to have to save him or something? And, you know, they do have to save him, but you know, that's, mm. a, a, you right. know, a I, I, I thought he, I thought it was going to be blown up. You know, I, I thought he was just there to be, you know, cannon fodder and it turned out not to be that way at all. Um, that's actually uh, yeah. the, the cliches like in this movie. And, you know, I, I will, uh, the movie is knowingly cliche in places, which you, you know, sure. your mileage may vary with certain things like that. But one of the reasons that I found myself enjoying it in this movie is that like you've got you've got David, who's the guy who should not be there. And um, you're like, oh, is he going to die? But then if you if you know your cliches, you can say to yourself, no, no, no. Eddie is 100 percent going to die because Eddie is just sort of he's there. He's an integral part of the team, but he's definitely not getting fleshed out as much as everyone else. You know, he's. I think if you were to take a stopwatch to it, you know, I I would be proven correct about that. Um, but then you start to think, but how is he going to die? And then you run into Hetty, and you're just like, there's no reason for there to be a anti landmine person in this movie, <laughs> right? Unless landmines come at some point. And then sure. you're like, oh, you know, they they're running around this field where all the gold bars are strewn. And um, well, I, I kept thinking that one of the things that they were going to dig up was going to be a landmine. Exactly. So it does kind of sure. yeah. lean your expectation in that direction. You know, if you know anything about these movies, like you said, so he does kind of subvert your original, you know, thought process. And I'm thinking these guys are, you know, digging for gold, not realizing and remembering that, Hey, this, they mentioned to you a minute ago, there's mines out here. Yeah. So that's what and I kept it's... thinking. We we're going to, we we're going to dig up or David was going to dig up one. It was going to be a mine. And then just real quick, he does the dance that Walter Houston does in Treasure to Sarah Madre. Yeah. yeah. And I, and the other thing is like when he, I, I had that same reaction, like, Oh, he sees something he's digging. Oh crap. It's mine. No, it's gold. Yeah. Okay. But now the next one's going to be mine. And if you don't know those cliches, I think if you don't know that you need to expect that someone will die by landmine, then that scene sure. may play very differently for you. But for me, it was this awesome mixture of like, they did it. They found the gold. Holy shit, guys. Can you please be more careful? Yeah, Isaiah exactly. Whitlock Jr. is running around with this like, uh, like literally like a metal detector, like a minesweeper. And I'm just like, don't right. go near where he's getting the beeps. It's a minesweeper. Exactly. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of beeps, he says. You're like, oh, no. It's, you know. <laughs> right. And then it's not until the next scene, you know, where it actually happens. And again, it is Eddie. And this goes back to uh, a, a thought that I'm not sure I completed. 
one of the intelligent things that Lee does in showing that um, that uh, the the video of the uh, prisoner being shot is that you can see the the spurting of the blood, and so right. you know that that's real. And so when Eddie is there in like that that horrible grotesque tableau, once he has stepped on the landmine, right. like your mind is drawn back to the way that the human body responds to that and just watching the blood leave. And because it's, it's one of those things that like, it's so uncanny that it, it, it threatens to become like, you know, just responding with morbid laughter. Like, is that really what we look like without legs and arms? Like, is that like the way that your body reacts to it? And just knowing that reality, like just turns your stomach to watch that. Um, I mean, I mean, it's the really fact rough. that he even he even survives that, you know, for as long as he does, is, yeah, right. w- was so scary because you hear him call out for his friends, and you're like, "What the fuck?" Right? Like, you're like oh, maybe he, he just lost a like? leg. Like, maybe he can be saved, and you're yeah, just like, "Oh right. no, nope." Yeah. yeah, and and they also the Lee ties the what happens to Isaiah Whitlock's character. Uh, to Milton Olive III, who mm-hmm. mentions, and there's a picture of him. You know, Lee did his homework. I have a friend who works for uh, the library at, at San Jose State, and he mentioned that um, they called last year to, to ask questions, some, some archival references about the war and ask questions. And Lee kind of puts Kent State and all these other things that were happening at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. He names the people who died in these, these events. And so he did his homework, and then he also is kind of giving you a little bit of a history lesson because I didn't know of Milton Olive III until I saw this movie. And he jumps on a landmine. He becomes the first black recipient of, of the Medal of Honor in the Vietnam mm-hmm. War. And then uh, Melvin says, well, I'd never do that for you guys. And you pretty much know he's going to have to jump <laughs> Right, yeah, you're like, okay, at some point uh, he's uh, got to uh, jump on a grenade or something. Yeah. And, and he does, and you kind of remember that. It's, it's a little shocking that you know it happens. You know, you kind of are expecting it to but then he's gotten this far in the movie you think okay well maybe he might actually survive and they'll they'll kill jonathan majors character you know so yeah. it's some of the like way he kind of plays with these elements even though they wind up being something you know is going to happen it doesn't necessarily happen the way you think it's going to yeah i mean and- i think you could speak to adam goff's editing there too i mean we've already yes. spoken about the the um Sorry, the the scene where it goes from the hallucination to the uh, him digging his own grave, and you know that's a that's a great hard cut. But I, yes. um, I, I think Brian, what you're talking about is very much the cutting in in that scene because you know they're kind of, you know, um, Eddie's kind of uh, freaking out as he's going back, like tensions are starting to rise, but the other guys are just kind of, you know, joking around and kind of like. You know, coming up with some colorful <laughs> insults and stuff. And, you know, it's a sight gag for half a second. But then, Brian, exactly what you said. You, you know, it's it's that uh, macabre and, like, consciously horrifying. Because you, you, you think for a second that this looks... I'm trying to find the word that... It doesn't sound insensitive, but still communicates a well, certain. It, I think I think like, that the word uncanny, like apart. yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, maybe it is uncanny because okay. like you know the concept of the uncanny valley is close is so close to human that it's like not it it like makes your mind rebel, and right. unfortunately, yeah. like that that is a thing that like you know if you if if you have like a baby right like a baby who's only ever seen a fully able human being. 
and then you you show them someone who's missing a limb or something like the they they'll react poorly to it because that's not what they're mm. used to but it's close enough that they feel like they're being tricked and so seeing something like that can be distressing especially even more so cuz like i just saw that man with all of his limbs not 2 seconds ago and mm-hmm. to see him like that now to see that switch i mean like and it's the the way the movie does it i think is a very good representation of like the the true horror of war which is like the the, the quickness of it like you anything know, how, can happen you know how yeah. quickly you can die how quickly you things can change in a second like those guys walking around reciting poetry that was given to their girlfriends they had no yeah. idea they were about to be shot and so you know sure. these and these are things that you live with so remember that the, the first time this they jumps back to vietnam the beggar throws the firecrackers and yeah. those four of those guys jump on the ground and i know people who've been to war my, my pops is in vietnam and i know people and loud noises will literally make them jump on the ground because that's what you became a sense memory if you had time to think about it you you know it was too late right <laughs> so that yeah. you know and so, like so in, in 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 here you know in, in america most times like you know if, if someone's gonna die you have time to come to terms with it you know because it's it's disease it's something that's slow and like that's just not the case in war where you can be those guys talking about poetry and then the next second you know all your friends are dead like there's no there's no getting used to it and for the rest of your life you're gonna be like in the course of half of a second everything can change and that's Mm -hmm. i don't know how people live with that um i um for a brief period of time after the uh, when i was coming to the end of high school i was gonna enter the military and um I uh I don't know. I don't know if it was like my whole like I'm young and I can live forever. Like I I felt like it was a duty thing, you know? Like I knew mm-hmm. the sacrifices that people were making and um I wanted to be part of it. I don't even think it was tied to like 9/11 or anything. I just think that there was a part of me that always found service to be a noble goal. So like mm-hmm. for a while as a kid I was like maybe I'll be a priest and then I was like maybe I'll join the military. And then for some reason I was like I guess cowardly in a way, like decided that maybe journalism would be a way to do that, but like stay here, you know, and well, like, you know, th- those guys didn't have an option because of the draft, you know, yeah, sure. So those Vietnam folks, they didn't have an option. You know, well, they, I mean, that's, that's why Ali is the one that opens the film, right? Yes. Yep. And, um, but yeah, yeah I mean like, and that was, there was kind of a part of me that felt that I was like, you know, there was a time when people were drafted. And one of the reasons that we don't have to do that now is because we have a volunteer military service. And like, I, if, if me being there keeps us one step away from the draft where people who don't want to be there, like if I think I can handle it, like I should do it. Like that's, that was like the, the, the thing that came in my head. And I just wonder like, cause I had friends who went in the military who, even if they didn't see combat, like just the, the reality of day to day life, like makes coming back to civilian life difficult. Like, you know, and a friend who was like, I don't understand what to do when I wake up at 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning and I don't have PT. Right. It's it's you just know. strange. You know, like I don't I don't know how well, to I got a I got a secret for you. You can still work out. <laughs> That's right. You can go do PT. You can still do all that stuff. You know, it's I learned, you know, what when I would talk to my pops about about Vietnam when I could, you know, people in war don't like to talk about it, and mm-hmm. it's understandably so because they have to go back. And, and live it in their head. They have to have the trauma. That's what, kind of what Lee is talking about, how you never escape it. And I think it, it's 
his trauma extends past people in war. He's saying in general, some people who have traumatic experience can't escape them. And you know, talking to my pops about what it was like to be in like, you know, to have to go and train or to go be on the aircraft carrier that he was on or to do this, that, and the other thing. And it's such a different, he, he told me that the last detail, which is my favorite Jack Nicholson movie, uh, it felt being in the Navy felt like that movie. And if you've seen the last detail, it's an incredible, and I love it. It's an incredibly bitter, and angry, and perfect for 1973 movie about how even if you did the right thing, you were still screwed, mm-hmm. and how these two guys are military men for life, and how they don't agree with what they have to do, but they do it anyway mm. because that's what you did in the Navy. And my pop said this is what it felt like, and I thought that was a great encapsulation that I could understand. Uh, you know, having never been to war, but who has seen a million movies, you know, that's kind of what I think that sense of duty compels you in ways that are, again, like a sense memory, but you don't even think about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we have been talking for almost two hours. Um, (laughs) There is because this movie is like, you know, I I, I keep wanting to say great. I don't know if I'm going to say great. It's very good. It could be great. I'll probably watch it like two or three more times to figure it out. Um, You know, it's, it's hard sometimes when you see a movie like this, because I saw it like yesterday. And usually if I have a high opinion of a movie, it'll only get higher. Um, It's the lower opinions where it's like, well, this is a toss up. It could go either way. So, but I mean like this movie is dense. This movie's got a lot to talk about. Like this movie, references so much and deals with so much that it's almost like when people say like oh it's kind of muddled it's kind of sloppy it's like well yeah like because unless you spend 20 years making it it's never gonna be perfect and if you keep tinkering with like that then you're gonna suck all the air out of it so like there is george lucas (laughs) there you go (laughs) Yes, there will be a a, a a special edition cut of Five Bloods. Um, that's gonna I, McClunky. Where, is that the word? Someone, yeah, yeah, McClunky. No, someone else is gonna shoot first in in one of these sequences or something like that. Well, to, to, to Lucas's credit, he did uh, finance Red Tails, and then he got out of the way the movie he wanted to make. Yeah, and he decided not to make it. Although he gave the money up for it, uh, you know. So again, putting taking a trope and adding, you know. African Americans, and in this case, a true story. Listen to how Red Tails was concerned, mm-hmm. and then taking those tropes and building is kind of like he wanted to make a World War II movie, like the movies that inspired him for Star Wars. Oh and yeah, talk about the Tuskegee Airmen, you know. So again, like I said, the power of movies and tropes kind of can shape the way people see or experience things that they don't, you know, normally would not normally do. Roger yeah. Ebert said, you no, know, they're an empathy machine mm-hmm. and how that empathy is, empathy is given to you is, is part of the design. I mean, I, whenever people talk about like genre or tropes as though they're a bad thing, like I don't get it. Like we talked about um, the invisible man on this podcast and, you know, people were like, Oh, you know, at the end it just becomes like a monster movie, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah. And that's freaking awesome. Like it rules. Like <laughs> what is wrong with that? Um, well, cliche is not a bad thing if it's done right. I've said that in many reviews to the point where some people are sick of me saying it, but it's true. <laughs> there is nothing new under it the sun. It has become its own cliche. Ecclesiastes. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, again, there's nothing new under the sun. That that was written a hell of a long time ago when it wasn't a sure. TV or Twitter or internet. So if it wasn't <laughs> shit to do back then that was new. What are you expecting now? Yeah, it's all yeah. the same stories, but just told with different instruments or, you know, 
different trappings. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's there's there's a there's a, an episode of Community where Abed is making his movie about making movies about making movies. And someone says, like, is your movie about Jesus? And he's like, I mean, is Robocop is the Matrix is and then he just rattles a bunch of stuff off. It's like, oh, right. We've been doing the hero dies for the sins and comes back for as long as. Yeah. And um, some scholars even point out that, like, there's stories like that that even predate Jesus. You know, so like, you know, know, the Greeks have plenty of stories about this type of stuff. I mean, they invented some of the and I said Deus Machina. I mean, that's that's a Greek thing. Right, the Oedipal <laughs> complex, you know, things like that. Like it's all, it's all in there. Um, oh, that's uh, as we try to wrap up. I do, I do love the um, the integration of spirituality in this movie. Uh, the amount of prayers, the amount of like earnest uh, contemplations and pleas to God. I just well, that um, shot of them over Norman's grave where they're kneeling and they're praying, and mm-hmm. then there's the overhead yeah. shot that that Seagull does is is just so powerful. And, it's, and, and is am I incorrect? Does David lead that prayer? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's David, it's the prayer. Mm-hmm. It's 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 really it's really beautiful. Like the way that he um, like that's the moment where he truly becomes part of the group. Like he finds the gold. Sure. Like you know that that obviously ingratiates him to them. But when he does, is does there he with them, go, at, hmm? does he ever go to the restroom? Because he <laughs> no. definitely had to take a shit. He had to take and... a shit. And he, yeah. I don't think he ever <laughs> the rest of the movie he has not gone to the bathroom. <laughs> That, that's uh doesn't that happen in uh that happens in, in dunkirk in dunkirk yeah in dunkirk yes it does so but I'm for sure him it was a week that for, too. for yeah. david is only like two days but yeah, yeah i mean like I mean, i'm sure he took a shit later but you know <laughs> um i, I mean like, I he if hetty gets to take this. a piss you know david right. gets to take a I, shit i was like i hope he doesn't show this that was kind of funny because i think <laughs> Either find a goal that Spike Lee was going to actually show him taking the shit, and then knowing Spike, he he might have actually considered that. Uh, so I, I was like, okay, you know, I right, that's, ready for see someone taking his shit here. Another <laughs> another point in his boldness is like, you know, he, I could it's see hard. anything right now. Like, who even knows? Um, he he did start to squat with his pants on, and I was like, you're doing this wrong. What are you doing? <laughs> and then you saw that he was digging the hole. He was digging a hole. Yes. That's all yeah. I I, so like there was a part of you know again boy scouts whatever but i'm like you're why are you squatting in that direction Cause, like don't you really like there is a literal line in it's it's a cliche it's shit rolls downhill like don't <laughs> squat so that everything might have to run past your shoes to get downhill uh, i see <laughs> I, um teaching me on the boy scouts if but you're ever yeah. in the woods you know and you have to go to the bathroom on a hill just make sure everything's pointed down already uh that's so, that's everything. This is why I don't go camping. Because <laughs> you have air for advice. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so what I was saying, yeah, I just love that you know he in that moment becomes a blood through their shared um, their shared uh, Christianity. Like it's right. you know because that's another one of those strong cultural things that like doesn't get shown a lot in movies unless it's a mob movie. You know, for whatever reason, like the mafia can be shown like being a family in Christ or whatever, but other places right. it's like, yeah, let's just assume everyone's pretty fucking secular. <laughs> I suppose that that's true, but I think war, you know, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll find God in, in the war in the second in the foxhole. Like it was that, you know, they say there's, you know, there's no atheist in the foxhole. The foxhole yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, so, so that's kind of there. That reminds me of gestures. I, I really love the double take that they do with every embrace. Like after mm-hmm. they do the special handshake, right. I, I love how they do it with not only the bloods, but then don't they also do it with, yeah, they do it with uh, Clark Peters and yeah. uh, his daughter as well, mm-hmm. which, which I, I love the way that that 
like they really only deploy it at the near the end if i remember correctly but well, yeah, um, yeah. he does he does the the people mover shot as i call it with, with those clark peters and, yes. and his daughter which <laughs> kind of like just goes back to black klansman of pulling people into kind of a present state of mind of mm-hmm. black klansman is bringing you into trauma and here it's kind of bringing you into this kind of like renewed kind of fam familial thing and that that ties in with the letter that he that uh that david gives uh, that um paul gives to otis his David's godson father to give to David in case he dies. And the same thing happens. Vin gives the same thing. He goes, if I die, send the money here, which yeah, is something yeah. he did. You know, that, that's not just a war trip. That really is what happened. You know, you can yeah. think of a million movies where they do this, including Pulp Fiction. Uh, yeah. You know, so, I am. Um, so, and yeah, I, uh, what, what I kind of love about that is that, um, and it ties into the last, shake. what was that? Their handshake, I, I love. Just sorry, that's I such just a complex handshake. <laughs> what I was gonna <laughs> yeah. say is, yeah. Um, so, so one of the things that I like most about this movie is that it is, a, and this is actually something that I, I really like about uh, Spike Lee. Because if you, I don't know, if if you've never seen his movies, you might be able to like, you might assume that you know what he's gonna do. And what I love is that he's <laughs> never really didactic. He doesn't go on like screeds and tirades. Like this is a a truly thoughtful man like as an artist as i think an intellectual like he puts a lot of thought into stuff and you could have a movie like this or any of his movies that focus on um how uh i don't what's the best way to put this how not great the black experience in america has been and it could be nihilistic but i mean the fact that he shows the ways in which these men pay their fortune forward or think about future generations. And then to end it with um, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, reading Langston Hughes, you know, I, uh, America was never America to me. And yet I right. swear this oath America will be like the fact that there is some idea of America that we're still striving towards like that, that it is something that is worth fighting for and investing in, even if it doesn't exist yet because maybe it never can like maybe it's like the deals are too lofty or maybe we're too broken as a species to make it work but just the fact that it's like no like this is a thing you know if you if you go to war you never leave war and all of existence is a war like you have to keep fighting like that's the only way things are going to get better and like i, I it's it's almost sentimental rhyme. it's 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 beautiful yeah but, it's a powerful you know, rhyme too with the charlottesville yeah moment right. and uh, Harry Belafonte moment in mm-hmm. Black Clans. Black I know it's, I know there's probably more there, but that at least was the specific rhyme I thought of. Right, but also the, you know, it, it, Ava DuVernay said this um, when they showed 13th at the uh, New York Film Festival, and I mentioned it in my review of 13th where, you know, it's life, and I can speak to this as a black person, life is not all trauma. There is black joy. And you want to see that there is black love, there is black camaraderie, and then Spike Lee always puts that in his movies, and and his cousin Malcolm Lee also does this. Uh, Malcolm Lee, you know, and interrogates masculinity in all of his movies, sometimes comedically, sometimes not. But mm-hmm. these characters, their emotions are never mocked. The affection they have for one another is never mocked. There's never ooh, this is a gay thing, or anything like that in any of this. The genuine, even Paul, at his most angry, you know, he says, "I like to." to to Davies, you know, I love you. 
And that is not an ironic kind of thing. This is a genuine yeah. emotion. And Davis, you have a funny way of showing it, but I, <laughs> but I, but I believe you, you know, and these yeah. things are, are presented. And a lot of times they're not presented in other movies that want to capitalize upon our trauma, our stress, our distress, our death, yeah. you know, and, and so Lee taking that and putting it into these movies and having those emotions be present and present without irony, I mean, present in genuine fashion is important. One of my, one of my favorite podcasts about movies, um, which is hard to have when you have a movie podcast, um, is black man can't <laughs> jump in Hollywood. And, um, I believe it's draw Milligan on that is, is constantly decrying like, you know, why, are movies that are centered on the black experience almost constantly about trauma. Like, you know, people can live like lives that are filled with love. Like we have good days, like things are happening that are positive. And, um, yeah, seeing that in, in Spike Lee movies, I mean, there's a reason that like the, the, the image of, um, uh, John David Washington, you know, singing, I believe I'm falling in love in a, in a, was it a disco or just a nightclub or whatever They're it was? Just in a nightclub. They're just in a nightclub yeah. there. And is it, whole thing with the faces and how Lee puts that together. And is and people complain. They said this was a tangent that wasn't necessary, but Spike Lee movies are a lot of tangents that people may not think are necessary, but uh, eventually I, I don't think even in his worst movies, like she hate me. I don't think that his tangents are completely meaningless. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe sure. he maybe he didn't need to go over there, but I'm, I'm I mean anyone that reads me knows that I'm full of digressions to the point where I even <laughs> say, but I digress in my reviews. Uh, you know, it's his digressions are interesting, even if they are unnecessary. But they're not. There's always a. It's, they're not like sloppy. They're not. I mean, they're not haphazard. He did it for a reason. He's doing yeah. it like not because I had nothing else to do. This is intentional. These things that he's doing. You know, right. are, are always intentional, um, which kind of leads me to the review on your site. Ah, uh, yes. About tangential sure. Things. This is a, well. This is also a, I think, a good way for us to to wrap up this uh, this to episode up, is yeah. to talk about this review yeah. that I only found out about today, <laughs> which I was like, oh boy, oh oh boy. So yes, please do. Here, here is my problem with this review, and I. As as a, as a as a critic and as as a writer and as an, an, a mathematician and a computer scientist person who happens to be a writer, um, I'm a firm believer in uh, building your points and making them and, and also um, kind of supporting your points. Like in math class, what do they always tell you in math class? And I used to teach math, so I always say this. Show, show your work. Your work. <laughs> See, the problem for me is that I could not show my work the way the teacher wanted me to, so I was naturally gifted at math, and then suddenly I was bad at math. Well, I have, <laughs> but I, I mean, have, I, I have in, a degree in, in math, and I suck at calculus, so... <laughs> <laughs> But rhetorically, I mean, like as as a person who went to school and, and, you know, did journalism and then also just a bunch of essay based English classes like, yeah, I believe in that rhetorical art of being able to build and build so that by the time that you get to your thesis, you know, wrap up, people already know what you're going to say and agree with you and just want to hear it. And you can back it up. You can mm-hmm. go back and back it up and say this. I showed you here where this happened. I, and, and I have a very top-down way of writing my reviews because I'm a programmer. So things kind of – programmers have digressions, which I think is probably why I have digressions. <laughs> but you know, the, the, the elements of the review that bothered me a lot 
where there is no mention of anything that is an influence in this picture. That's number one. There's no Apocalypse Now mentioned. There's no Treasure Seramaji mentioned. There's mention of Die Hard, which I saw opening day, and I've seen probably 22 million times, <laughs> to the point where I can tell you everything that happens. I can probably give you dialogue. You can turn Die Hard on, I can just recite the dialogue to you. And there's nothing Die Hardish about this movie. Um, and it seems like the... As, as uh, there's something I always say as a critic, and I say, you are not better than the movie you're reviewing. Even if it's shit, you're not better mm-hmm. than the movie you're reviewing. You can't take that tack. Otherwise, you have to get out of this profession. You know, I work with customers all the time, and some of those customers are a pain in the ass. But if I told them to go screw themselves, I would be out of work. Right. So you have to have that. I think that this review didn't have any respect for the movie it was reviewing and to also not have any kind of historical context that we've been talking about for the past two hours of these things are not ever mentioned in favor of, of snark now snark can be good and in some instances but in this particular movie the type of movie that it is the elements of you know black history and blackness that are not even touched upon in the review and the comment about tropic thunder which is kind of what really upset me uh tropic thunder is a satire of vietnam movies we know this much uh and and you know it's kind of playing on a lot of these tropes that spike lee kind of throws into this movie or in, in most movies but tropic thunder also has a blackface character and whether it's satire or not, making comparison between a blackface movie and a movie this important about blackness and black trauma and black people and black things that you don't see in movies is tone deaf to the point of offense. And I think that's kind of what upset me. Now, you don't have to like the movie sloppy. And I, I acknowledge that some of the things that other reviews that were negative about it said it was sloppy. It didn't bother me. And that's why my review is what it is. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, there's really no justification for the points that were made. And then the final thought for me, and this is a question, is if oh, – the, the review ends saying you should go watch Do the Right Thing or or, or Malcolm X again, which made me kind of think mm-hmm. that the reviewer had only seen three Spike Lee movies because only three movies that are mentioned. And we've talked about about nine Spike Lee movies on this call. And sure. I wondered if this was a review of Quentin Tarantino movie you didn't like, if you would say, okay, well, I I didn't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You should go watch Reservoir Dogs. These are not compared <laughs> at all. These are just movies that made by the same director. And right. to me, it almost seemed like the blackness that was depicted in, in, in Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X, two completely different movies that have some things in common in terms of what they're depicting about black life, has nothing to do with this. And it almost seemed dismissive of, of the mm. director and of you know, this but this guy has been making movies for forty something years. Forty years. You know, his first student film, Last Last uh, Hustle in Brooklyn, was shot during the blackout in nineteen seventy seven when he was in oh NYU. I I just realized that you're right. It's been forty years. Oh my god. And and so, you know, <laughs> he's gotta have it is is eighty six, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Joe's best eye, you know, uh, barbershop we cut heads, which is I think his thesis at, at NYU, you know, was as earlier than that. You know, Spike went to school with with uh with the Coen brothers and Jim Jarmusch was three years ahead of him. 
uh, and, and Ang Lee, he went to school with Ang Lee as well. And they all were at NYU at the same time. Imagine that. God, can you, you know, imagine being in that class? <laughs> in that ridiculous class. class. <laughs> of people that looked well, up to, just, the, you know, to Jim Jarman. Just imagine, just imagine the people that we haven't named and who are probably like looking around at themselves. You know, not that they're listening to this podcast necessarily, right. but they're probably like, okay, so there's Spike. He was my classmate. There's the Coens. He was my class. Like, fuck, man. There's what Ang happened? Lee. He's my classmate. And Jim Jarmusch is our mentor, our upper class mentor here you know think yeah. of this this you know, that, that those four years in NYU was something else and for me that was what was upsetting is that you know I feel like in movies like this that's dense and deep that you need to do a little bit of homework to kind of understand what's happening even if you don't like it I mean I hated yeah. Nina a movie I think is one of the worst movies I made and I think is racist and offensive as hell and I wrote like 1100 words on this movie and I talked about why and I was able to justify why I felt the way that I felt and I think it's important to do that and not to be dismissive you're not better than this material if you think you are you need to get out of this profession Mm -hmm. and I think that 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 review was everything I dislike about criticism especially now and even more so as someone who as a black critic, I have to kind of fight for something to talk about the people that isn't a black movie. When I get pitched things, and I never pitch anything because I don't have any freaking time. I'm a programmer. I, I you know, <laughs> I, I I have to pick and you know judge. And also, I'm a staff critic, so I'm going to get a review assigned to me by Brian. Sure. So I have to worry about that. But when things get pitched back to me, 99% of the time they're on black things. And I discovered that I had to supposedly be an expert on all black movies, but my white counterparts didn't have to be. And mm-hmm. they could get uh, to write about these things, whereas I would love to do a, uh, a podcast about Witt Stillman, one of the whitest directors around. I was about to say, wow. Talk about it. I love Witt Stillman's movies. Just a translucent. He, he changed my mind on, on Greta Gerwig, whom I couldn't stand until I saw Damsels in Distress. So, yeah, I you know. But no one would ever ask me to do that. If someone who has done my homework and has been around for a while, I would never be asked to do that. But someone could write a review not knowing anything about Apocalypse Now or, or anything and, and be snarky about it and dismissive and throw it out there and it's there. And to me, that was kind of like, you know, a lot of the younger folks don't think that movies existed until they got squirted out of their daddy's nuts. And it's, that's not how it works. Yeah, you know? I mean, we, we there, there's been um, a, a rolling discussion about that. I th- there was um, I'm yeah. not going to say the name because honestly, I can't remember. There was a person who has like written a book about movies who said that like we didn't figure out movies until like 1985, and I'm not going to watch anything before then because they're but not good. It's like people said sex didn't exist until the 60s. <laughs> yeah, there's a who is it? is it Larkin who has the poem that says like sex. Was wasn't yeah. invented until? Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah yes, yes, yes. Okay, it, great. It, it, it's, it's Larkin who said that. I, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, what the actual quote was, but it, it, that's right. They say you know, sex didn't exist until the summer of love. Yeah, it was. I think <laughs> it was like sex. Sex didn't exist until 1963, yeah, which was rather late, late for me. Late yeah. For me. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's the exact same thing. Yeah, it's and 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 what I'll say, I, you know, I I'm not here to to past judgment on someone who literally i believe this is the only review i've ever read and i only read it because i found out that there was a 
a maelstrom kicking up about it. Um, <laughs> I was I was at the distillery. I was tasting the whiskey coming off, you know, the still, and it's hot. It and then, me feel like you know, like I envious. I'd love to be at the distillery. I'd love to have some booze. <laughs> so if you were, <laughs> if, if y'all are ever in the DC area, come to Schmidt Spirits. Um, <laughs> we uh, but so like, and then my phone goes off, and I'm like. Oh, oh, what's happening here? And then it's like, so this is the context. And I was like, what is happening? So then like I, I say to my partner, I'm like, you got to watch the still for a second because I apparently have to go read a review of a movie that's not or the, the review, a not very good review of a movie that I really liked just so I can understand this. And like I because of this podcast and then just being uh, like a single father and then also working at a distillery, in addition to being one of the few people in the country who's still gainfully employed during this time of crisis, yeah. I don't have a lot of time, so I can't write a lot. So I feel like, you know, I'm not a prolific, widely loved writer, so it's it, it's not my thing to, to down talk someone. But I, you know, in reading it, I felt that. And my I've had to write a lot of bad reviews um, because for a while on this website in particular, everyone wanted to review the cool indie stuff or like the high class stuff and the, the superhero movies or what was left over. Um, oh God. Well, I, I won't review them, but you know, Brian <laughs> likes to punish me. He likes to give me the bad movies cause I didn't like Carol and he hasn't like forgiven me. For oh, that. I didn't like Carol either. Um, I anyway, I, I wrote a review. I didn't hate Carol. I gave it two and a half stars. I just said, look, like I would say that. Carol. That's yeah. the Spiegel catalog from 1952. But <laughs> but Brian never forgave me for that, so he gives me things that, you know, wind up getting one star just to torture me. <laughs> but so like, Lucy I, in the sky. <laughs> no, he didn't give me that. That was my fucking fault. <laughs> I, I thought I it was going to be a good movie. Yeah, I went to Toronto to see Dolomite. That was why I was there. <laughs> but so, like, you know, I, 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 I learned pretty early on in my career, like, you know, if you love a movie – Oftentimes you can get away with just saying this movie rules. Um, and, you know, it, it's better if you're smart about it. Obviously, that's more helpful to people because at the end of the day, a review should help someone decide whether or not they're going to see a movie. It should be a, a rhetorical piece of persuasive writing. Um, if you want to do an essay that helps people to understand the movie or come to terms with it or, or help them to to decipher it. You know, you can put a little bit of that in a review or you can do a whole other piece of writing. You can do a whole other piece that's yeah. separate from that, um, that's not spoilery, whatever. And what I decided early on was that if I hated a movie, I had to be a lot smarter in my review than if I loved a movie. Um, yeah. Because people are going to like that movie. And if if you love a movie and someone doesn't like it, they're probably not going to come at you that hard. <laughs> but if you hate a movie and someone loves it, you need to they're be able to. You. Yeah, yeah. You And you yeah. need to be able to say like. This is specifically why, like, you can't leave any yeah. margin for that kind of thing. And, you know, it, it, you, even if you think like the, like this movie has a place called Apocalypse Now, like, so like, oh, do I really have to say that Apocalypse Now is one of its, uh, its, uh, things? It's like, yeah, you do, because you're making a piece of persuasive rhetorical writing and you need people to know what you know. You can't, sure. you, there's no footnotes. You can't just what, assume what's like. the most famous Vietnam movie that was made? <laughs> yeah. Apocalypse and, now. And you can't you can't say like, well, this is movie criticism 201. So I'm going to assume that you all did all the reading for 101. It's like, no, if you saw something and it played into what you were thinking, you got to put it in there. And if you can't make it work, you got to restructure. Like the the for me, writing is up. not so important as rewriting. You know, I'm one of those right. people who obsesses over every line. Yeah. So you can imagine how my weeks are ruined when I see a typo in something that I wrote like 4 months ago. 
Um, send you back to the distillery. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. <laughs> just call up Arthur. It's like, I'm going to open one of the barrels and I will see you tomorrow. <laughs> I misplaced a comma. I need to. Yeah. Oh, Brian, I'd like to, I, I, I'd like to piggyback on, on what you're saying as well. Um, as I, I think the other thing is that it's not only while you're writing, but after you're writing, if you receive feedback, if you see someone saying something, whether it's one person or a dozen, I think you need to be completely open to that. Whether you're yeah. at the beginning of your career, the middle or the end, I, I think the best critics are the ones who seem to be constantly learning and constantly yes. trying to understand things and you know, and be curious. I mean, you know, that does go back to the film history you're talking about, uh, Odie. But I, I, um, yeah, just to I, I add my own thing, I just think, um, yeah, th- this is this is a review that mm-hmm. had a lot of conversation about it, and um, I, I think if you if you see that, like, I I think you you take it as a as striving to be better. Um, and I, again, I don't want to hate on the writer or, or anything. Um, you know, right. I don't, I don't know this of, guy. I don't, you know, it's, you know, yeah, so no, I feel, I, I see, I, I feel bad to, ganging up, but also like, you know, you, you wrote what you wrote and the only way to learn you have to own it. You have to own it. And yeah. I, I say this all the time. My mother used to tell me that sometimes you just need to take your ass whooping. And you yeah, know, I, uh... and I've I've taken many ass weapons over the time with things that I've written that I go back and like you know someone got upset about that and I realized sure. why they got upset and I realized that what I had said was probably not you know the the, the you know maybe not the, the kindest thing or maybe just, it was not clear and I need to yeah. go back and learn from that. I'm an editor. I edit stuff and so mm-hmm. as an editor editor and a writer you kind of have a slightly different perspective on things because you edit as you write you're going through this with a million times by the time it gets to brian or to matt or to, or to anybody over at rogerbit.com or you know at vulture or wherever i've gone through it 22 billion times and yeah. it's like i'm an upset I'm, I'm a compulsive so this is going to happen <laughs> and you know and that doesn't mean that i'm perfect that i'm not going to make a mistake but it means that by the time you got it I have agonized over this and agonized is probably a uh-huh. hard word, but I've gone through it over and over. Make sure I've tied everything together because I'm a compulsive. So, you know, and, and, you, and it's still going to get fucking edited. It's still going to get edited. So they, <laughs> they, they might find they, the, the editor's job is to save you from making an ass of yourself. And, you know, there are editors that I'm terrified of that I, you know, I, I will send it back. I send it to them and I'm like nervous that they're going <laughs> to send it back to me and it's going to be like, you know, ah, you know. Here's it's, your red marks. Yeah. So have you started like, drinking like again? A bad grade, you know, like you're get, getting a bad grade. No. Um, I am. You know, it's, it, it's difficult. I mean, again, you can, if you can defend your yeah. work with clarity, then what other people think of it can at least, they may not change their mind, but at least you can say, this is where, how I got where I got. And I don't see that here yeah. because I see that it's just, I want to score some snark points. And I, I know what this is like. My first writing job was writing for a place that the design was, it had to be snarky and I couldn't do it because I, I thought snark was like natural. It shouldn't like be me trying to like score. I'm not a stand up comedian. So, you know, it, it should be intrinsic to what, what I'm saying. And, and, you know, not but if just you're being snarky. Points. Also, you've got to be smarter than if you're not being snarky. Like it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's easy to look at, um, snark and satire and stuff and just think like oh that's so easy i just have to say the opposite or be extra mean 
But like, that's not how it works. Cause you still got to be making, you're like adding a layer, a puzzle layer on top of just straight earnest criticism. You know, you you now have to graft everything that you're saying on the surface to a deeper truth. And it's a, it's hard. It's why I don't do it. I, I just put my heart on my sleeve and explain why I really didn't like Batman v Superman. Right. Um, well, yeah. I mean, you know exactly. And it, satire. Why? Why most satire doesn't work is that most people think satire is easy, and it's not because yeah. a satire has to work as exactly what it is you're satiring, satirizing. Mm-hmm. Blazing Saddles is a credible western. Yeah. It's shot Starship like, Troopers. It's Starship Troopers. Oh, yeah. Incredible, kind of like Simon. I didn't like Starship Troopers, but I do I acknowledge that as a satire, it does exactly work because it is a credible example of what it is making fun of. You know, this whole military type thing. That's why most of them fail. Why, you know, you know, Spike Lee, I wrote a piece called Spike Lee's Modest Proposal about Bamboozle, a movie I didn't care for. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it worked as a satire, although his imagery was so potent that. I think it has uh, it's it's overrated is a bad word, but it has a higher amount of respect because his imagery is so potent. But underneath that, it's kind of the structure is weak enough where it doesn't it kind of collapses in on itself. You know, as an example, not necessarily a bad satire, but a satire that doesn't work all the way through. You know, and the same thing has to happen if you're going to you know be dismissive, you need to at least justify your dismissal of it and i don't think yeah. it works here and i think that's why people you know kind of everyone that has read it you know when i was trying to get a sanity check about this <laughs> had the same kind of issue that i had that you know this really isn't saying anything but you know being mean and in not being mean in a credible fashion and then there's the whole tone deafness of some of the references that are being used mm-hmm. and, and you know that was kind of like you know you know no that i can't so that's what bugged me about it so much. Sure. You know? Yeah, and for me it was you know again I and maybe again maybe reading it on the floor of a distillery uh, wasn't the best place to do it. But I, I need just, to be on the floor of a distillery. Um, <laughs> I was standing on that floor, by the way, not laying down. Well, I thought on you it. were laying on the team. Nope. Um, you're just you're just bragging now. Just, I know. Name dropping. It's gonna be clean. Yeah. So so like I am. Um, I was reading it and I was. Uh, it was one of those things where it took me a while to like really grip on to like um, how ineffective it was because for a while i was just like this is just a and again i i you know i don't i don't want to sound mean but like this is just a not particularly well written not particularly well elucidated or argued whatever like it, it, it by the time i got to the end and this is how i usually know how good a review is if it has a letter grade at the end and i look at the letter grade and go oh that's what they gave it <laughs> like, like that's 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 like when you do that like oh yeah i thought you were much more positive on this movie why did you exactly. give it a c plus a c minus you know it was a c minus oh yeah you know, so you know it's a c minus i'm like okay he wrote like uh as you know i would have sent it back as an editor but regardless i thought he wrote kind of a middle of the road review and then i see a c minus at the end and i was like you know this doesn't yeah, justify it you know, and, and then and, you and, go and back I, yeah. and you see the like you were saying like some of the like i you know uh I don't, I don't understand the diehard thing um, just from a, a basic standpoint. Like there's not that many shootouts in diehard. Like the whole point yeah, of diehard is that there's no right. He, can't, he doesn't know what he's doing. He can, <laughs> he's he, like, it, in diehard, he cannot attack these people directly. So that's why he's, he, he's a guerrilla fighter. I mean, he is in the ducts. 
right. getting shit done. Um, and, and he's vulnerable because, you know, the, the whole point of Die Hard and him being barefoot, how Wilson, we have, I've always found this fascinating, is that it puts him in the most vulnerable position and then the movie's cruel by having him shoot out the window. <laughs> Actually, that's something that you mentioned earlier about um, the, uh, what are we talking about? The, we were talking about like the, the vulnerability of these men. Yes. Um, and how, how compelling that makes it. And it's something that we brought up, I think, in our Hobbs and Shaw review, um, which is this might be the only podcast that ever juxtaposes these two movies. <laughs> is that like one of the problems with Hobbs and Shaw is that like no one's getting hurt because no one wants to look weak. But like weakness yes. is what makes a hero compelling, because if you don't believe he can be beaten, then where's the inherent tension? It's boring. That's why I always yeah. thought Superman was so fucking boring, because he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's got, at least he has tonight. But, you know, for yeah. the most part, it's like, you know, Spider-Man was a teenager and Batman was, you know, fucked up in the head. And, a rich dude. <laughs> and, and, you know, and a rich dude that was fucked up in the head and, you know, and, and, and. You know, Superman Green Lantern was useless and, <laughs> and, and and Superman was just you know like it was boring and, and it, the only and I'm not a big fan of these superhero movies even when I was a kid my, my parents took me to see Superman I was bored out of my mind uh, the, the, the first one I mean and I love the second one but you Donner. know it's with the Donner yeah and he did both of them well you know Richard Lester yeah. Technically, did the second one, but oh, there's yeah. no a hero when nothing bad's going to happen. The movie's boring, you know. There, there was a movie, The Gambler, a remake of The Gambler that Mark Wahlberg did. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, Mark Wahlberg. And then, <laughs> the, the, Let's the just three, skip over that real the, quick. The three, no, no, the, the three, <laughs> the three supporting characters in the movie, one of whom was played by Michael K. Williams and one of whom was played by John Goodman, they were more interested in Mark Wahlberg's character. But the problem was, unlike uh, James Toback's original movie. You know nothing bad was going to happen to Mark Wahlberg, no matter how deep in debt he got in or how much trouble he got in. You knew nothing was going to happen to him, and then that made the movie bar. Like there was no suspense. Like they're not going to kill him; they're going to give him another loan, and it became so boring. And yeah. you know, it's like you, you know, there has to be some tension. And and Hobbs and Shaw. It's funny because there was contractual things about yeah, how which many is how, they could take. <laughs> which is how how like that was how that came up because it's like. Usually you watch a movie and you're like, this is boring. I just don't think they knew what they were doing. And then you realize that, like, legally they could not make it interesting. Right. I love that that got leaked. <laughs> that was the best. But, like, so, I, you so know, I, I just needed to bring that up because that's another point that I love making. On top of how, like, Hollywood is, like, really anti-friendship. <laughs> um, the fact that, like, <laughs> people let their egos get in the way of letting them make a more interesting movie is big with me. But, like looking at that review like yeah it's it it has a lot of problems and i think that one of the one of the things i think that we probably have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who would like to be able to talk or write about movies and i think that the way forward if there is one is to never assume that you are done learning and that really honestly yeah. applies to life in general there will always be someone who knows more than you or who knows different than you and, and you, you need gotta, to get up under that person and know what they know. Yeah. You have to, you have to hang up under them. I was always hanging up around the older people when I was a kid because they knew something I didn't know. My kids, my peers didn't know shit. They knew just as little as I did. You know, mm-hmm. and I think even now, you know, I'm, I'm 50. And even now, I, there are things I'm learning. I'm reading people's stuff. Also, that's the other thing. Read other people's stuff. Oh, even yeah. if you yes. don't like that person. I, I love that some guy wrote me one of the nicer emails I've ever gotten because he used to get hate mail saying that he didn't agree with a damn thing I said in any review I ever wrote. <laughs> but he read me because he liked the wow. way I wrote. 
Yeah, and, and everybody mean, should have everybody should have a critical nemesis. They should have somebody that they don't <laughs> agree with at all. I love it because love this it. is perfect. Because if you don't agree with me and you know how I, my I think, and you think the opposite of me, I'm the best critic you have. Because if I didn't like it, you know for sure you're gonna like it. Mm-hmm. And I always so say like so, my critical nemesis. You know, I have my critical <laughs> nemeses that I read, and I know if they like it, I know damn well I ain't gonna like it. I, I love where this is going. Um, I want to I, I want to interject here and kind of give us a, a way out. But um, uh, I, I do want to say as a writer myself, um, you know, I I enjoy doing this podcast because I can wear my um, inexperience on my sleeve and I'm not going to get bashed for it necessarily. Um, yeah. Cause you, you cop know, to it super quickly. If, you, if you're, if you honest, if you're honest about it, then yeah. nobody's going to like beat you off. I always say that, you know, I don't know the answer. You know, you know, if I don't know the answer, I'll, but I'll find out what it is for you. But, uh, he, here's the thing. So when I was a writer, when I do anything, honestly, I fucking want the feedback. I want it. I desperately need it. I desire it. Good, bad, in the middle. I don't care. As long as there's some kind of engaging uh, conversation or critique or anything like that, I love having conversations with people. And I feel like a lot of times criticism can feel like a one-way street where you're just sending it out, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And every now and then – you are lucky enough to have a piece like this, right? You know, I I will not say good or bad, right? right. I will just say you are lucky enough to get the feedback. And, oh my god, from from critics take, too. Like you know, yeah, usually right. my feedback is you know, fuck you, <laughs> Spider Man rules. Go die. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You suck. You know. This, yeah. You You're. You I have been anything. called. I have been called a neo-fascist Nazi and a libtard. Like, there's just so, like, you know, it's not super <laughs> constructive for me. It's not helpful. I don't know what to do with that. Are no, you reading my Vice yeah. review? <laughs> it's 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 not a help that you know people. That's why it's good to have a good con, kind of conversation as discourse like this. That someone's mm-hmm. going to talk to you and not because if you just call someone a name, where do you go from there? You know, you don't really have any place to go. It's not productive you right. can say your, your review sucked but my next question is well how yeah you know what 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 sucked about it you know not necessarily going to agree with you but at least if you tell me i might actually say hey you know what that did that line did sound like shit maybe i should have changed well every writer mm-hmm. says that no writer is ever satisfied <laughs> you edit things well a, a couple of years after you'll read it and you'll be like that's pretty good did i write that what yeah i've fuck? done that with a couple well, of my I, novels I've done that, and i've had a couple of people come up and say lines to me from my reviews like that sounds great who wrote that and like you i'm like for real <laughs> You sure about that? And I'm usually I'm usually pretty good at remembering what I wrote. I mean, the people will come up to me and and I, I did a review of a movie called Stage Fright, which is a horror movie starring Meatloaf. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Already on board. And, and and it was a musical. So wait, no, wait. Get you're gonna get even more on board. It was a musical. Yes. It was a horror yes, movie yes, yes. starring Meatloaf. And as a joke, I said to 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 Matt Sites, I said, you know, I should write this review as uh, to the tune of Bad of the Hell. 
because that in hell is eight minutes and fifty <laughs> seconds, and you can get a credit sure. review out of, out of you can, it's enough words in the song yeah. that you can get a review out of it um, that they'll pay for. <laughs> it has enough, <laughs> words. Uh, you know. And so, as uh, a joke, I said this, and Matt was like, "If you write it, I'll put it on. The, it'll be the lead review on the site." <laughs> so my review of Stage Fright, you can sing it to Bad Out of Hell. <laughs> and it literally, you can see the whole entire thing to about it. And it makes sense too. The review makes sense. And people will come up to me and say, you're the guy that wrote Stage Fright Review. And I'll sing it to them. I'll sing them pieces <laughs> of the review because I know it off the top of my head. So I usually am good at remembering what I wrote, good and bad, especially bad. <laughs> bad lines I never forget. Like I never forgive myself for. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, but, you know, at, at the same time, you know, I'm not perfect, and sometimes I know that I sit on a review that I think is kind of like half-assed in terms of yeah. my own quality level, but still has my points in it. And I think you can never stop learning or being influenced by someone else that can teach you something. You always learn. The day you don't learn is the day that you die, right. in my mind. It, you know? Yeah, if, like, you know, it both literally like you died and so you've stopped right. learning. But also if you choose to stop learning, you your growth is done and everything is yeah. a downslide. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it, it, you know, it's kind of to, Wait, to wrap up. I just want to like, say I'm I'm reading this review. Odie, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, please sing it to us. <laughs> no, uh, <Okay>. no. <laughs> All right. So, I, so I, like, I am surprised. Man, I'm not going to sing it now. Uh, <laughs> I am. So like, yeah, for me, it's, you know, I think that part of it is, is the way that the, the internet works. Um, people have to make things faster because honestly, like, you know, uh, it, 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 except in rare cases, a movie will disappear within two weeks of it being released, which is a horrible thing that we should, as a culture, identify and stop. Um, exactly. I, I mean, it's, it's so bad. I remember, you know, seeing movies that came out like five years ago in movie theater, like with a f- double feature, like finally seeing it on the screen because there was no VHS back, you know, in the 70s mm-hmm. so that we could afford. You know, so, but now movies are gone in like a week. Like, well, you know. I, 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 took the, I took a long weekend to write a I'm not going to say what movie it is because I know Michael Snydell doesn't like it. But I wrote like what I thought was a really good essay about a particular movie and how it relates to parenthood. <laughs> And I, you know, I like slaved over oh. it, picked up, picked out every word. And I was like, this is great. This might be the best thing I've ever written. I sent it to an editor and he was like, this is really, really good. I love this. We are not writing about that movie anymore. And I was like, it came out on Friday. <laughs> it was a hit. It opened at number one. What do you mean we're not writing about it anymore? <laughs> it's already streaming now. You missed your opportunity. I know. That, that, so, that is the problem that, you know, that, that you have to get it off a click as soon as possible. We have that at, at rogerubit.com. We have, you know, deadlines. In fact, I owe them a review. I gotta write them tonight. Uh, oh, God. We gotta finish. Well, <laughs> No, 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 no. Believe me, it's perfectly fine. I, I, I write fast. I, I, you know, I, I, my life is words. You know, I live life and experience it back through words. So, it, it's easy for me. Writing is easy for me. How I'm not bragging. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, it, it comes natural. That people draw quickly. I, I write quickly. But you know, it's, you have that kind of. I need to get this out as soon as possible. I need to have an opinion as soon as possible. And for criticism, that's a lot of times it's a bad thing because. You ever walk out of a movie and you didn't know what the hell you thought of it? And, <laughs> yes. and you're like, I, I, I felt that way about Gemini Man. I, mean, I knew I didn't. I, I was indifferent. But I'm like, how am I indifferent? Now I got to turn around and do this review. You don't have time to really think about, you know, and formulate that even if you do write fast because it has yeah. to get out there, you know. It's, and, um, and I understand that part. I was going to say, like, podcasting is even worse because, like, 
you don't we you don't have the bizarre experience you don't with you don't Gemini have man too <laughs> you don't have the benefit in podcasting of being able to say oh you know that whole paragraph i just said doesn't work i'm gonna scratch that and pretend it never happened like <laughs> i speak extemporaneously sometimes and i'm just like i can't remember how i started i really hope this tracks <laughs> and the other thing is and again you know it's just it's um Michael Snydell today uh, said something about a ship and then we got into like a joking discussion about what kind of ship. And he said, you know, is this is this bigger than a schooner? And I was like, you know, I don't know, because a brigantine and a schooner both have two masts. It's really about the rigging. Um, a sloop only has one mask. And, you know, if it's in a gaff rig and he was he said, like, you're like our biggest repository of insane information. And it's like, you should attempt in your life to be a repository of insane information. And yeah. one of the, one of the ways to do that is to listen to other people and uh, take what they say. And, um, and uh, always attempt to uh, speak as clearly as possible. And uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm happy that even though that review came to epitomize what was viewed as our site's opinion, um, that you were still able to come on this podcast because I fucking loved this conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you guys for, for having me again. And, uh, you know, let's do this again. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Come back for Whit Stillman. <laughs> I, I'm saying this now, Odie, the next <laughs> Whit Stillman movie or a classic Whit Stillman movie, I will reach out to you as our well, guest. You know, and for, for years, I've pitched this piece on Bill Forsyth, and I even went to see Bill Forsyth. His oh, name right. is pronounced Bill Forsyth. He said that. Sure. It's not Forsyth. And I will never get it right because I'm so used <laughs> to saying it the wrong way. And I went to hear him speak at Film Forum, and I, I have all of his movies on my on even being human, which is awful. Uh, you know, And I love Bill Forsyth, and I wanted to write this piece, and for years I've pitched it, and nobody would take it. Because what do I know about Bill Forsyth, a, Southern, a, Scot- a Scottish director – I saw Gregory's Girl at the Hood Theater. Okay, so it's like you know, we we do know, and it was on HBO twenty two million times. So if you missed it in the hood, you certainly got it on your television at HBO, and you were in my neighborhood. You know, so it's these are things that you know don't have people make assumptions about things, and it gets you into trouble. I um I will say that if you do want to do. A, a, a classic review of Damsels in Distress, a movie that I saw in theaters and thought, what the shit was that? Um, I would be willing to watch it again just to have a conversation with you about it because I, uh, I, uh, that I movie watch is Love nuts. and Friendship again. I mean, I'd <laughs> I love, love to love talk and Love and Friendship again, but we already do have a full <laughs> review of that. But I'm willing to go oh, back yeah. to Damsels in Distress. Cool. Barcelona, Metropolis, yeah. That one episode of uh, Homicide that he directed. <laughs> i love homicide life on the street it's a good it's a good show um, anyway uh so that All is right, it so for today uh we have been talking for uh, two oh, hours and 40 wow. minutes <laughs> we uh we beat the movie guys we did it congratulations <laughs> um if you are still listening thank you so much i hope that this has been an edifying and interesting conversation for you um let me remind you that we can be found at patreon.com slash the film stage show where you can uh, give us your money. Also, don't forget to go to mubi.com slash film stage for a free 30 day trial of movie, the curated streaming service. Uh, don't forget uh, that they have Ida coming a great movie that we talked about. And of course the short film Atlantics uh, from Mari Diop. And um, yeah, again, that's mubi.com slash film stage. Uh, Michael Sandel, what are we talking about next week? 
Oh, damn it. I knew you were going to ask me this. Uh, <laughs> it might be the Starship Troopers classic episode, or it will be the the King of Staten Island, which I feel like conversation we... has weirdly kind of just, I don't know. It kind of died pretty quickly. If it died quickly, I will $20. once again repitch that we should talk about the Vast of Night. Which is fantastic. Oh, I'm into that. Yeah, the I'm Vast of Night is lovely. Okay, and it's available. at Midnight Madness in Toronto. Oh. Oh. Midnight Madness is, is so still, fun. Still programming that? Uh, no. I think this year they changed. Last year they changed it. But they, they did off. They also changed something else. And now you can get weed uh, at Midnight Madness at TIFF. Oh. Wow. That that well, also that rules. seems like a bad idea. <laughs> I I pitched um. The director of Bubba Hotep, I can't remember his name right now. Don Coscarelli. Coscarelli. I pitched him on the idea that uh, every Midnight Madness movie should be sponsored by like Red Bull or somebody like that where they just hand them out. No doubt. That was sponsored by weed. (laughs) Yeah. I I think weed for me would have the opposite effect. It would just put me to sleep. So um. Yeah, I thought that was a bad idea, but you know, I I don't I don't smoke, but I thought, wouldn't this put you to sleep at midnight? You're already up, but what do I know? Yeah. I don't know. I um I the one time I went to TIFF and I would have gone back a hundred times since then, but they've only had like six since then, and I have not been to any of those, but hopefully one day I'll go back. I made certain to do Midnight Madness, and uh, mm-hmm. I saw a movie. That, I, always... I saw a movie that no one has ever mentioned since the night that I saw it. It's called Big Game. It stars Samuel huh? Jackson as the president. Oh, yeah. I reviewed Big Game. I reviewed it. Did you like it? I did. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty from good the movie. Troll Hunter director, isn't it? It's from the guy that made the Killer Santa Claus movie. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. Which which one? <laughs> Not Krampus. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What's it called? Oh crap! I don't remember. But he made a oh, the, the, the kid. No, the, the, yeah, rare exports. Yeah, is that what it's called? Yeah, uh, the, the, the the kid the kid is from that movie is in this in in big game. Uh, big game is fun. Yeah, big game is a fun movie. Um, I'm looking at it now, and apparently you can rent it or buy it for eleven dollars on Amazon Prime. Um, but anyway, so we will be talking about the Vast of Night or Starship Troopers or both, but we don't know which weekend. I guess it'll depend on who we can get as a guest. Um, but yeah, that is that. So let us tell the fine people at home where we could be found on the internet for further contact and uh, reading more of our stuff. And we will begin with our guest, Odie. Where can people find you online? Well, uh, I'm on Twitter at Odie Nader, my handle, O-D-I-E-N-A-T-O-R. I'm one of the writers at RogerEbert.com, and uh, so that's pretty much primarily where I am. And occasionally I write at my blog, Big Media Vandalism, uh, which the last thing I wrote was about Stevie Wonder a little while ago. But mostly I'm on Twitter and I'm on RogerEbert.com, um, so that's where I am. All right, Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CableBFG, but definitely find me on Instagram where I post lovely pictures of my dog. Um, it's at Billstagram. All right, Michael Snydell. Uh, you could find me on Twitter at, at Snydell. I write things occasionally this week. I have a review of uh, Wasp Network, Olivier Assayas' new film at The Spool. Uh, I am also, intermission is back. We, we took a break to give space to uh, 
the protests and uh, you know a number of things that are going around in the world but intermission is back this week uh, the latest episode that I just released and will be probably public by the time that you hear this is uh, killing them softly with Roxana Haddadi and this week uh, I will also have Olivier Assias's cold water with guest uh, Vikram Murthy so two intermissions uh, out this week Woo. Overachiever. Um, I can be found at my personal site, brianjerone.com, where I have not posted or written anything in many, many months. So I don't know. Don't go there. Um, mm-hmm. Online, I can be found on all social medias at Brian J. Rowan. Uh, Twitter, that usually just means me retweeting funny stuff that I see. Uh, on Instagram, it means a lot of pictures of random shit. Today, there was a very large hornet. So if you want to see a picture of a very large hornet I took, find me on Instagram. Um, And of course, you can find every episode of this podcast and uh, writing and stuff for me and everyone else over at thefilmstage.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next time. Bye.